I'm Joe White, the voice of Chris Redfield. When I'm not surviving the horror of the Spencer Mansion, I'm listening to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. This is Katie O'Hagan, the voice of Mia Winters, and when I'm not babysitting temperamental bioweapons, I'm listening to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. My name is Richard Waugh. Just think of me as a ghost from the past. This is Paula Rhodes, Evelyn in Resident Evil 7 Biohazard. This is Michelle Ruff, the voice of Jill Valentine. I'm Reva DePala, the voice of Rebecca Chambers. Hi, my name is Allison Court. My name is Sarah Coates, the voice of Marguerite Baker, and you are listening to Crimson Head Elder Podcast. Want to come to dinner? The T-virus is spreading. Raccoon City doesn't have long. We need to cover our tracks. No one can know Umbrella was involved. Commence Operation Raccoon City. Sun 6 actually approached Capcom with the idea of remaking Resident Evil 2. And this is something I would see later on in the project where the repository was called RE2 Remake. He and I actually cried at one point in the game because we were so passionate. We wanted to make the game as best as possible. There was tears in our eyes about it. What is Resident Evil? It's dark, scary, cinematic survival horror. However, I was told, no, this next game that you're going to be working on has more to do with Call of Duty. It was a global number one, but the fact that it was number one in Japan, it really blows my mind to this day. At the end of that night, I just knew that I was making a, a very different Resident Evil game. Thank you so much for being with us as part of this Halloween season of the Crimson Head Elder podcast. The director, the game director of Resident Evil Operation Raccoon City, we've got with us today, Andrew Santos. Thank you very much. Thank you for introducing me. So asking those questions, you've got myself, George Trevor. We've got over in Wales, we've got BSA Arclay. Hello, nice to be here again. And in Kentucky, we've got USS Command. Howdy. Zombies coming this way. I'm going in. Cover me. It's Umbrella. Get him. This is from Aslam Ahmed from Karachi and myself, uh, BSA Arkley from Wales. We were both asking, what is your relationship to Resident Evil and the wider survival horror genre? Have you played the games? And if so, which are your favorites and why? Was there any particular style of gameplay or character type that you strongly felt warranted inclusion into the series? I've always played a lot of games that could be classified as horror. One of the interesting things is when I was making games on the Amiga as a hobbyist before I got into the games industry, we actually made a, a survival horror game you know, with zombies in it. And we, we basically designed our old school and put zombies in there. And you went down to the basement and you find out actually it's there's aliens down there <laughs> and a UFO. <laughs> uh, it's a terrible game. It didn't get released. We sent it into Amiga format to try and win a contest. And we never even got an honourable mention, so that was... <laughs> but it was it was it was kind of our version of Alien Breed, and and you know Alien Breed Tower Assault, you know that was a game that I really liked. 
and then Doom and, and Quake were kind of early horror games for me. But one thing that sticks out is working at Psygnosis and somebody bringing in Biohazard, the Japanese version. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of people who play import games and were learning kanji at Psygnosis. And I used to play them, watch them being played. When they came out on the West, I, I bought some of the games. I bought Resident Evil 2. I bought Code Veronica. Dreamcast and I bought Resident Evil 4 for the GameCube which for me at the time I was making Operation Raccoon City was actually my favorite in terms of gameplay mechanics was Resident Evil 4. I owned 5 but I didn't think that was a Resident Evil experience it felt more like somebody had seen Uncharted. So yeah when I moved on to Resident Evil I'd been playing those games and I've been playing games like Condemned and I really sort of appreciated the fact that we'd have to create something that had like the audio design of Condemned that would be scary and I wanted the game to be dark and things like that so yeah I I was a fan of survival horror and I wanted to make a survival horror game. That's all the fans would want and particularly would want with this remake of Resident Evil 2 that those involved have yeah. an appreciation yeah. for survival horror and have played the games and the games you mentioned such as Code Veronica it's just wonderful to hear it's unfortunate that perhaps they didn't take advantage of your history with the series well you know um Resident Evil 2 you know had all the all the aspects of a game that would be made later on it was very very cinematic and if you look at how we design games in in 3D you know look at the skate games they were games that were trying to be filmed from a vid- videographer's point of view so my view you you can make very sort of cinematic experiences games like modern warfare incredibly cinematic so for me making a a cinematic survival horror game in 3d would be a great great challenge my favorite games were resident evil 2 because of how epic it was and resident evil 4 because of all, all the sort of gameplay innovation in that game and I guess I had a dream of kind of merging the two. You know, if somebody said to me, what do you want to make? I would say, I want to make Resident Evil 2 again with Resident Evil 4 type mechanics. And, you, could, you know, we mentioned Skate a minute ago, but the camera is one of the areas that I worked on. You know, that over-the-shoulder camera in Resident Evil 4 gave me the confidence that we could make the camera in Skate. So it was hugely influential on what I'd done before. And I kind of wanted to merge those two things. Um, I guess the last game I played just as I started Operation Raccoon City from the series was Resident Evil 5. And I I, I didn't like it. I felt it it had been influenced by Uncharted or something. Um, So I wanted to make something that was dark and scary. Um, And sadly, the game isn't isn't like that, and we'll probably discuss that. But that's definitely the direction I want to go in. I mean, that's interesting, but be careful what you say about Resident Evil 5 with your SS Command and BSA Arkley on the call. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's the direction they went in with the remake of Resident Evil 2, which wasn't necessarily popular with, all, with everyone. That, you know, that, those RE4-type mechanics over the shoulder, free-moving camera. They took the Resident Evil 2 narrative in, into that style for the remake of 2. Resident Evil 5 is a lot like Remake 2. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you've got the horror there, um, which 5 doesn't have. Remake 2 added in is essentially RE5 with horror. The thing I like about these games the most is the story, which is why I like 5. And then you got Remake 2, which I don't think had the story. It skips a lot of like story beats. I can see why people like 5 and dislike 5, and I can see why people like Remake 2 and dislike because you're just looking for different things in the game. Like. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I, I guess I like the dark, scary nature of the other Resident Evil titles. You know, it was it was different for me. The, the ambience was different in some way. The the draw of, of basically Resident Evil 2 is is the, the sort of grittiness, the, the, the zombies, the horror aspects. You know, they, they really got, I, I think, Resident Evil 2, in my, in my mind, is the epitome of, of, of a horror location. It, it was perfect. So it was definitely good that, that I got a chance to go to go there. It was definitely something that I wanted to do. I, I definitely wanted to go to Raccoon City <laughs> and, and make a game in it. So I, in a way, as a fan, I got to fulfill my wish. I think that's what a lot of people want is to like go back to Raccoon mm. stuff like that. And I think like one of my favorite things about Orc is like it didn't necessarily retell a story; it told its own story, which is what I would have preferred over Remake Two. I would rather they just went back and dealt yeah. with different like because you know you got a city with a hundred thousand people and they keep going back to like two three people. Like, well, they, they, there's a yeah. lot more going on there. Like, so. We felt there was there was many options to tell a story in in Raccoon City. Um, imagine what it would have been like just being in a cafe and the outbreak happening ar- around you and the BOWs being landed into the city and things like that. It would have been yeah. absolutely crazy. So there was definitely different ways you could have approached that situation, different ways that you could play through it. You was aiming for something a bit more action and a bit more horror. Outbreak is kind of like that. If you remove like the some of the co-op stuff, like. Yeah, I I think from from my point of view, there was definitely a, a shift in in what type of game they wanted to make at the time we were pitching to them. You know, they wanted to make something that was more action focused. But I know from speaking to the team that they were they they wanted to maybe do something that was more akin to what's just been released, which is the Resident Evil 2 remake. The project repository where we keep all the files and everything was called RE2 Remake. So, so there, there was a consensus on the, on the team that I, I think even through the pitch process that this is how the whole conversation started, talking about this RE2 Remake. So when when I joined, the game wasn't 100% defined. I was saying, can this be, because it was in Raccoon City, that's what they told me. I said, can it be a remake of, of Resident Evil 2? And they said, that's what we, we pitched. Somebody told me that's what we pitched. And then I would see, as I said, on the repository with um, the name RE2 Remake and, and some of the files in the repository. And I thought, well, it was almost a consensus opinion at the time that this could be a potential option. But I think, you know, Capcom wanted a more action-based game. Yeah, I think that's where they were at the time. Yeah, I, I think it's Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare has been released and it really changed gaming with its sales. Yeah. I think from a, a business point of view, they wanted some of that space. You know, I think Resident Evil as a universe is big enough to house more than one type of gameplay, as they're doing now with Project Resistance. They can afford to do, I think they can afford to do different types of gameplay, and I, I don't think, as a Resident Evil fan, you can get too bothered by it, because, you know, it's just another take on something else that's happening in that universe. It's a bit like um, the Clone Wars cartoons in relation to Star Wars. Some people will love it, and some people won't. At the time, I, I, I bought into the concepts of, of what they were trying to do, and I definitely think there's enough space to do it. I just wish that it had been it been better received by press. Yeah, well, just before RE7 came Revelations 2, yeah. which kind of went back to horror, and then following that, they had the HD remaster of Remake, and I think Capcom and uh, everyone was surprised by how well it did. Um, it was like the number one selling game on PSN. 
yeah, after that, I think they had a bit more confidence in it. And then they made RE7 and mm-hmm. the rest is history. So if you was to have this opportunity around that time, I think it would have been a different game. Yeah, yeah. And I, I would have loved that opportunity. I think um, for me, Resident Evil is dark, scary, cinematic survival horror. That's the pillars of Resident Evil. And our game didn't really do the, the survival horror aspects. To much regret they didn't do that but at the time we were given the direction of creating a more action-based game and that's why it sort of veers away from the pillars in my opinion yoke from north america asked did capcom come to you with the concept for a combat focused resident evil game or did saint six approach capcom with the idea <laughs> well, this is uh, a question I've been waiting to be asked for years <laughs> because this is a <laughs> this is a question. Obviously, I couldn't answer in my time at Sun Six when we were working for Capcom. Yeah, um, you know the situation is when you're a developer and you're working with a producer, it's a very delicate situation, and the PR is fairly tightly controlled. Because I got there, and I'm probably like you guys. I'm, I'm a Resident Evil fan, and the reason I'm I'm there for the interviews and everything is because I love Resident Evil. It's one of the game's biggest brands, most beloved franchises you can think of in gaming, and I want to be part of it. And so I go there thinking I'm going to make a Resident Evil game that's going to be so good. And when we get there and we have those initial discussions, it's quite an interesting story. I, I said, what is this game? What, what are we going to be doing? I mean... I know nothing about it. I'm learning where they've been over the past few months whilst they've been discussing things with Capcom. And what I was told is Sun 6 actually approached Capcom with the idea of remaking Resident Evil 2. And this is something I would see later on in the project where the repository was called RE2 Remake. So, you know, this was happening before I was involved. Over the course of uh, communication with Capcom, obviously Capcom had other ideas about what the game should be, and eventually they settled on a direction that Resident Evil Operation Raccoon City became. Quite a lot of that discussion happened before I'd actually joined. So I was really there to execute on on, on the vision of the project that you see that is shipped. I know that when I first met the Capcom production team, I was asked, what is Resident Evil? And my response to that was, it's dark, scary, cinematic survival horror. However, over the course of the night, I was told, and I'm not going to reveal who by, but I was told, no, no, this next game that you're going to be working on has more to do with Call of Duty. Which, you know, personally is a, is a disappointment, but you can understand that Resident Evil has so much rich history. You think, well, this this is possible. We could do something different. Yeah. It could be a different kind of game. I just had to make what was there in front of me. Was it made clear to you? Did you find out, let's say, from reading between the lines, why that decision was made? I can speculate, but I don't want to speculate. All I know is at the end of that night, I I just knew that I was making a, a very different Resident Evil game. I'm someone who's fairly confident. I thought, I, you know, maybe this is my opportunity to shape the vision because I am coming onto the project later to make sure that we impress Capcom with a demo and, and make a game that they want to make. And that's ultimately what I did and executed upon. I realized that all the questions that I was about to ask by being a Resident Evil fan about the direction had already been asked and the route that became Operation Raccoon City was, was chosen. The thing that, that Slan 6 came up with, the thing that we came up with, was pitting the Umbrella soldiers versus the government soldiers with the BOWs in between. 
So, you know, all the, the monsters in between. So we call that three corner combat and Capcom re- really liked that idea. And I, I still think it's a, a fantastic idea. This kind of asymmetrical game where you're fighting, you know, other humans essentially and the monsters are just another threat to you. Not perhaps not the major threat in some places like they had been in other games. So it was, it was very different. You know, I totally bought into the three corner combat idea. I think it was um, a very smart pitch Science 6 made and I, I got to, to work on. Can I just add to that? Um, in Japan, it was like all over the websites, this three-way combat. It was constantly mentioned more so than anything else. So it was like a, it seemed like a big selling point for them in, in Japan that you get two sides and with like BOWs in the middle. Yeah, yeah. We'd seen something similar with Left 4 Dead. No doubt that being such a big hit in, in North America, that was heavy on our minds too. So we had Capcom themselves mentioning things like Call of Duty and us looking at the gaming market and looking at things like Left 4 Dead. I always remember just, just before I left Ubisoft, speaking to an animation director who was a massive fan of Left 4 Dead. And he said to me just as literally the day I was leaving, Andy, I was playing Left 4 Dead last night. He said, wouldn't it be cool if it had Resident Evil monsters in it? That stuck with me because eventually I got to this other company where I was having to produce a more action-based Resident Evil. We definitely wanted some of the, the fun aspects of that other game because that was a scary game in places too. When somebody gets caught in that game, the others react and we thought, well, maybe we can make some sort of new type of scares in the Resident Evil universe and let's give it a go. Yeah, and that, that's what we did. In a kind of innocent Resident Evil fan kind of way, you were, you know, it was, the, it was all the positives. All, all I could think of was we're going to make this awesome game and it's got to be different. And uh, I definitely was up for the challenge. It must have been exciting to like take a series like this and try and head in a new direction. It was, and you know, and you also nerve wracking. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely, definitely nerve wracking. I mean, Capcom is such a great company to work with, and they have such an array of talent like there were other people who were involved in this project like Sasaki-san who directed Resident Evil 6 uh, Seito-san who directed the Chronicles games and you know to work with those people where you, you're, you're a fan of what they've done and the games that they're making it was just an incredible opportunity and I'm so thankful for it and even when I, I resigned uh, from Ubisoft I, I, I remember telling some people at Ubisoft I'm going to work on Resident Evil and they just went that's cool <laughs> you know everyone <laughs> yeah. clearly understood why I was leaving Ubisoft to go work at this other games company because of those two words, Resident Evil. Probably happy as well because Left 4 Dead had a bunch of Resident Evil skins as DLC. So <laughs> in the end, <laughs> yes, yes. I think you guys would have made a better Resident Evil 2 remake than Capcom did. Say you guys just did 100% Resident Evil 2, like the same story and everything. I think you all still would have done a better job because ORC is full of environmental details and stories, universe world building stuff, you know, like posters on the wall and stuff. All that stuff in Resident Evil 2 remake is blurred out. So there's like posters all over the walls with text that's just been censored. It's horrible. Yeah, I, I, you know, the one thing that I will say is the art team, the team working on the environments, they really paid attention to those details. I do agree. I, I remember the first time we got Raccoon City textured, it was just absolutely amazing. Oh my God, you know, when it changed from just a grey block environment that had all the textures on it, all the detail on the ground, and a tyrant dropped in. It was absolutely amazing. And we created this demo where you, you fought uh, through Raccoon City up to the RPD. We deployed this tyrant, and, and that that's what got the game greenlit. 
It didn't really make any sense in terms of the story. It was just, you know, trying to understand what the game could be. And it was it was really awesome. I've been doing, me and Rodney called it Orc Fest, because I've just been doing it every single Operation Raccoon City. I spent like all week reading stuff. It's just so much lore with this game. And then you look at Remake 2 and there's nothing. Like even, like Rodney said, the, 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 the blurry textures. Capcom put out an art book and it's got blurry textures in the art book. I have no comments on that. I mean, no, yeah, I, understand. I, I think that when, when you're in a project like this, it becomes, regardless for me, every single project is a passion project. Every single game I work on, I just want to make it as awesome as, as possible. And this game is absolutely no different. I think that's one aspect that sticks with me about this game was at the time of the reviews, I think we had really lazy journalism. They didn't understand that this was a game made by Resident Evil fans, for fans, and would explain things and challenge things, uh, challenge perceptions that maybe Resident Evil wore. I posted a, a tweet online, Operation Raccoon City Textures of, of a magazine rack, and you've got things like RPD Press and Raccoon Times and, and Victory Lake magazine, and then you look at Remake 2 Textures, and it's just got fishing. That's it. Camping. <laughs> climbing. There's nothing on them. There's no law. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And then you look at Orc, and it's just rich with law, like everything. You can go back and look at the world, and it's just immense. If you guys got to do Remake 2 and Capcom give you the time and the opportunities and, you know, everything they've had to make Remake 2, and I think you would have nailed it. Awesome. That's really good to hear. Thank you. A lot of games companies have difficulty with brands and branding, I think. You look at the way Prince of Persia has evolved, for example. I think yeah. Capcom were doing, going through like an identity crisis maybe towards that time and they were looking to like outbranch the series and go down different avenues but yeah. I, yeah. I, I think people just wanted to stick to the horror and I think like they realise that now but if like you've got the chance to make this game now I think maybe you could have had more of a horror theme in the game for sure I, I mean there was there was definitely internal issues I remember there was one person who didn't think we could scare four players at once because we were a co-op game and um, I disagreed with that yeah, I think for, for Capcom, they wanted to, to explore different directions. It's obvious if you look at RE5, RE6, and then RE7, they realized probably yes. around the time we were doing Operation Raccoon City and they released Revelations and saw how the press embraced Revelations because it was more of a true Resident Evil experience. They probably saw, yeah, we should concentrate on the, the survival horror aspects of Resident Evil. And that's a good thing. That's a really good point about the identity crisis Capcom were going through because I think, and also the financial crisis they were going through, and I really think they were looking at the Call of Duty phenomena and online gaming and wanting to basically put just a Resident Evil, a zombie skin over that style of gameplay. And I think that they felt that Operation Raccoon City was exactly that. Yeah, um, Resident Evil 6 was in development before Resident Evil Operation Raccoon City. I think we shared the same director as well from a Japanese point of view. I think Sasaki-san was on Resident Evil 6 and he was also on our project too. So, you know, we were a stopgap in a way. If you think about the financial aspect, it was definitely there to fill a gap because Resident Evil 6 was taking a long time to make. I've been quite disappointed for you though. You think you're going to make this game and they just throw a curveball at you and say, no, <laughs> you know what? Once the direction had been set, I, I, I tried to make the best game I possibly could in a year. And look at Red Dead Redemption 2. That game has been in development for probably eight years. So to do a game in a year, it's, yeah. it's tough. And, and bear in mind that they were making a sequel too. Uh, they weren't making a game from scratch. 
it was really hard. I mean, every single mechanic in, in Resident Evil Operation Raccoon City was developed from scratch again. You know, just even shooting, for example, was developed from scratch. Every single day there was something really hard to deal with uh, when you went into the office. There was so much to design. The artists, the animators, programmers, everybody works as hard as they possibly could to make something that was going to be fun in the Resident Evil universe. It was exciting to be working on it and and to kind of reimagine monsters. And I, I remember making videos of comparisons of some of the monsters. So I took the, the Hunter from um, uh, one of the Chronicles games and the Hunter that we made in Operation Raccoon City. And it's night and day. You can see that the Operation Raccoon City Hunter is really dynamic and a bit more scary, less cartoony. Those sort of things is, is what I take pride in, is the fact that we were able to realize things and, and kind of get some things right. A lot of the team take away different things from the Operation Raccoon City project. Some people are incredibly disappointed. You know, they didn't feel like we, we got a first shot at the Resident Evil franchise. We got hammered by the critics. Everyone's blaming Slant 6. But you know what? To do something that you couldn't possibly achieve in one lifetime, if you think about it, because you got like 120 people working on this over the course of a year, and then all the people outsourced making art and things like that. You end up thinking, well, we did this fantastic achievement. If you look at it in terms of just the project and being able to assemble it in that time and to write a new game engine and things like that, it was phenomenal. It really was a testament to everyone who worked on the team. Yeah, that could take years just to write the game engine. Exactly, exactly. It comes together really, really fast and quickly. I can't help but be proud of that. For the first six months of 2011, I took only seven days off. So weekends, I was working. <laughs> and then it got to June, and I always remember the designer at DMAC saying to me, you've had a cold for about a month. You need to, you need to take a weekend off. And so I, uh, I booked a weekend in Whistler. <laughs> Looks like we missed one hell of a party. What are you doing? Taking a specimen while it's still fresh. What was your background as a programmer that ultimately saw you become one of the first developers from outside of Japan to produce a Resident Evil game? Well, my background was set by my, my father. He was a sea captain. And he took me to Japan at the age of six in 1982. And when I was over there, I was blown away with video games. I mean, I was bored on the ship for months. And then all of a sudden, we were in Japan. And there was Pac-Man and Gallagher and all these different games. Oh, when you just said Gallagher, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was all these different games. I came back to the UK. And all I wanted was a, a video game system. I pleaded with my mum for an Atari. My late brother, he suggested that we should get a computer instead because I would learn to program a computer where if we got an Atari, I'd just learn how to play games. <laughs> so that's what happened. So I got something for Christmas I didn't really want was this computer. <laughs> and it went uh, completely obsolete. It was a Texas Instruments uh, computer. So it went obsolete in the UK. I had to program video games after that because none were released in the UK. That's not one of the, like the big three home computers we had at the time in Amstrad, Commodore, yeah. and the Spectrum. I've never, I've never even heard of that one. Exactly. So I'd go to my friend's house and they'd be playing all these games, and I'd get home and I'd have the same cartridge, the one cartridge. <laughs> it left me no option but to learn how to program. So I did that. I always had this interest in becoming a, a video game maker, and I thought the way you did that was through programming. So I went to university eventually to do software engineering, and it was during the summer I got a job at uh, Cygnosis. 
uh, Sony Computer Entertainment Liverpool. After a few months, I got promoted to a game design position, so I essentially never went back to university. Then I worked on lots of different games. Going back to Japan, that must have been an incredible time and informative as well. What an incredible time to, to be there. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. It was the year of the Walkman. I actually got a Walkman. Japanese guy came on board the ship, spoke to my dad, went, oh, you have a son. And then next time he returned to the ship, he gave me a Walkman. This kept happening. So every time I saw a Japanese person, they'd, they'd go, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and then they would come back to the ship with a gift. Like it was incredibly bad mannered that they didn't bring anything for me. I got all these Nintendo Game & Watches and they were the first games that I had so they immediately stopped me being bored on the ship until then I think I had one remote control car that I remember playing with and that got me from <laughs> you know from Brazil past Africa through to the Philippines and you know I was getting bored of the remote control car I think we'd run out of batteries and then you know well, this is like a cruise for like a gamers <laughs> dream cruise <laughs> yeah it was it was it was absolutely amazing I mean I remember my mum saying you're not gonna go to school this year and we just went on a <laughs> on a ship you know flying fish and dolphins next to the ship on the equator and things like that it was amazing yeah, yeah. But it also became very very boring and and this is why games were so important to me as a youngster because i would do this time and time again i would go back to my dad's ship and i would have to do something to make me less bored and it's fine getting a board game or something but eventually you get bored of the board game and you have to create something you have to change the rules of the board game or do something to make something more fun so that's what made me think about games that's, that's interesting yeah yeah that's why i wanted to, you know eventually because i could program them that's why i wanted to make computer games and so that lists some of the earlier games that you first produced yeah yeah so i was promoted to design i worked on two games that were unreleased for psychosis and that taught me quite a lot about what not to do i think I worked on those two games, and then I moved to the Colony Wars series. I worked on Colony Wars 2 and did quite a few of the levels on Colony Wars 2. I moved on to Formula 1. I wrote dialogue script for Formula 1, and then worked on a Star Trek game for a company called Warthog, which had all the Wing Commander guys work there. And Oh, yes. Yeah, and then I, I, I was lead designer of a rally game called Rally Championship, and then I left to become a programmer. So I worked on a Destruction Derby game on PlayStation 2 for two and a half years, and then I, my career really took off when I went to Canada. And initially I worked at Rockstar for a year. The studio was making Bully, you may remember that oh, game. Nice. Yeah, yeah, I was actually, uh, I did a voiceover for the original Bully when they were oh, doing yeah. tests. So the original Bully was, was Scouse. <laughs> 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 I think the lead designer like read the wolf or something and it, he was like oh, yeah. you sound like it Lister you should do the voice um, I remember recording the line this is how we do things in Bullworth and my <laughs> push someone and I was headhunted to go to EA to be the lead designer of new IP I worked on three different IPs and the one that shipped was Gate and I was the lead designer of Skate and Skate 2 and then I went on to um, work at Ubisoft I worked on Driver San Francisco and then I was headhunted hunted to to work on resident evil at sun six i was basically at a wedding the guys that had actually brought me to canada who worked initially at rockstar they saw me and said hey you know we've heard you doing good things in the city would you like to come work for us and i was like no no and then when we got a bit more drunk one of them said resident evil and <laughs> <laughs> next week i was going for an interview <laughs> oh <my God>. wow <laughs> 
And I think that's that's one of my issues with the whole Resident Evil press thing, is they said it's this company that have made shitty SOCOM games or something, and now they're doing Resident Evil, and that that was just so not fair, you know, because I hadn't worked on, on any of Sunset 6's previous projects. Yeah. And I know that we created new technology for the game, so it wasn't just a reskin, and that was pretty hard to take when you read press. I've never done any self-promotion. I'm kind of fairly shy, really. Maybe that's why I don't have the Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> now, as, as a fan of the series, yeah. was there a particular gameplay mechanic from the previous games that you were quite keen to implement into Operation Raccoon City yourself? Yeah, yeah. There was lots of different things. I mean, when I thought about the, the mechanics that worked, I, you know, I always th- thought about things like Resident Evil 4, going up to, into the house and just hear the sound of windows smashing and the, one of the bad guys coming in through the window. You know, those sorts of mechanics were things that really scared me. They're the sort of things that I wanted more of in Operation Raccoon City. I didn't think we had enough of that type of jump scare. There was cases, uh, real funny cases in Operation Raccoon City where obviously one of the most scary things in Resident Evil was the the zombie dog jumping through the window. Yeah, everyone remembers that iconic. (laughs) So we actually created the zombie dog jumping through a window and we put it in our test level. We never made it into the game. Capcom vetoed that. No, no, not Capcom. Just the communication error on our team. I remember it being put into the game and then playing through the level the next time and it had gone. <laughs> and it turned out there was just miscommunication on the management side of the team. And oh, so it got removed from the game. So it's actually, I, th- I think it's in the DLC, but not in the main game. But I just wish they put more of those things in. Yeah, if you had the time, these, these are the sorts of things with the quality control and play testers that could have been ironed out. Well, it's it's down to time. I mean, everybody is really concerned that they're running out of time all the time. You know, there's so many different mechanics that we put into the game that were removed. Basically, every single co-op mechanic was removed from the game before we made those things because of the time pressure. If you think about it, we could only make about one monster a month or milestone. We were really pushed for time. If you're like me and you know what was in the plan versus what we executed on, there's a lot of things that were cut just because of time. There was all sorts of ideas from more exotic things like opening doors to helping characters climb up to different areas and things like that. More, you know, let's use Beltway more to explode through areas and have a secondary route through the level, you know, those sort of things. We just didn't have time to do that. And the reason why is because if you've got a year to produce a game, the most time-consuming thing is making the art assets. So the art assets were actually built before we nailed the gameplay mechanics, which is crazy. It's not how you're meant to design a game. But one of the things that I'd been taught working at places like Rockstar is sometimes you have to make gameplay in areas that are already built. That's just a fact of working on an open world game. You need to use this location or whatever, and it hasn't been designed for that, but you find some gameplay organically that fits that area. So we had to do that quite a lot with Operation Raccoon City, especially with the environments that went into production first. They were built before we'd designed the gameplay. You know, when you first start the game, you go down with Hunk into Perkins Lab. And as you're going down there, it's just the the fact that you come out the elevator and you don't walk in a straight line to the door. (laughs) You have to turn left or right. Those sort of things kill me. (laughs) <laughs> because it's it's because I'm having to live with what I've got, right? And um, yeah. it's not ideal. There was things like that. Uh, we had uh, other difficulties with designers trying to fit things in areas, and they just didn't work. 
I remember one of the first encounters you had with other human soldiers in the game, they were shooting at you from your blind side or on the left, and that just won't work as a game mechanic. And that's why you go into the, the lab and then they're on a platform below you, so it's easy to pick them off. But that's trying to make use of the geo as opposed to doing that on purpose. For me, the frustration is the fact that if the, these locations and environments were designed prior to the actual gameplay mechanics, maybe you could understand if Capcom were quite keen to preserve the integrity of the original environments and the geography of Raccoon City. So, you know, here's the pre-designed Raccoon City Hospital and the RPD or, or Birkin's Laboratory. We want to keep to the aesthetic of the original. But, but yeah. that's not the case at all because n- none of those areas look anything like their outbreak or Resident well, Evil 2 or 3 counterparts. There was an art director on the project, and he worked really closely with Capcom. So whatever is in the game was really something that was devised in those meetings when they were trying to get areas correct. I think one one of the things that you can't really sort of do is is say, we're going to use the original floor plan, because obviously that's not going to work for a a co-op shooter with the monsters in it and the, the other characters. We have to maybe have some artistic license and reimagine the spaces a little bit for the gameplay that's in there. So we had to we had to go through the spaces and kind of identify what kind of gameplay that we'd want. But doing it on paper and then doing it in a sort of 3D environment is a lot different, as you can imagine. There's a lot of things that are left over to other people's imagination. So, you know, I'm not making every encounter in the game. Neither is the lead level designer. You know, level designers themselves have creativity and they try to make things that work. So, you know, we did the best we could with the limited time we had. There was things that we learned collectively that even on the DLC improved, like just the interstitial sort of cinematics that you got in the DLC were a bit better because we we storyboarded before and after each one. So it fit with the gameplay a little better. And that's because we pushed the DLC. We pushed it in terms of the project plan. So after release. The quality of what we achieved in a year, I, I think, was pretty good, especially artistically, just getting all the mechanics to play together. But, you know, another year to refine them all, it would have been a yeah. much, much better situation for us. Well, this next question speaks to that. It comes from the Batman uh, from England. Okay. It is very clear that a lot of care <laughs> and attention was put into many aspects of the game. Other aspects seem to contain contradictions with the Resident Evil 2 and Resident Evil 3 timeline. What research did you undertake when planning the game, aside from playing the related games, and were the small canon details important for you to uphold? Yeah, yeah, they they were. It's pretty hard to think about it and think we got a date wrong, because we did so much combined work on the design team to make sure there weren't any contradictions. We really want to make sure the details were right. The only thing is whether it was done on purpose, because, you know, now and then some things might happen to to separate it from the canon. I don't know if there was some intentional decision, but I can't recall anything. But we worked extremely close with Capcom to ensure the small details were correct. I remember talking about the G-Virus, you know, the G-Virus in the original games was purple. In later games, like the Chronicles games, there were blue and red helixes, which means from a distance, they probably look purple. And then in the movies, they were green. And so getting something like the G-Virus correct was something that was important to us. Yeah. And there were corrections all the way through the game to make sure that we got details correct. And uh, the actual plot points and things like that were devised with Capcom. And one of the things that was really interesting, because I wasn't there for some initial meetings, was I couldn't change any of those plot points. They were set in stone. This was an amazing learning for me because in Western game development, you agree something with a producer and then you 
come back to them and go, hey, you know what, we've thought about this and maybe this is better, generally kind of changes to the better idea. But I felt that once things were agreed, they were agreed and that was it. So it was a, a very different way of working. A Japanese mentality versus a Western North American mentality. So I found very quickly, and I remember apologizing to Capcom because I came up with a, a bunch of different plot points. And they said, this is not the game we've agreed to. <laughs> and so very quickly, I apologized. And then we started making the game that they'd agreed to. From one point of view, we were trying to tie the game to the timeline of Resident Evil 2 and 3. But another thing that came from Capcom was the Kill Leon idea. That was not a Sun 6 idea. That's one of the so, best ideas they've had. <laughs> uh, and so, so I, I, yeah, I, I know that I've spoken to some hardcore Resident Evil fans, fans of Chris Redfield and Jill Valentine. They love that idea. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I remember speaking to a girl who was Korean when Resident Evil 4 came out. And she goes, why Leon? And she, she exploded. So, you know, I thought it'll be good for her. Um, <laughs> you know that it's not going to be a canon game. Command. The cop is dead. Good. Now finish your mission and bring us the girl. Copy that. You're coming with us. Claire! I don't want to go! Sorry. We've got orders. We created a timeline of the original games and we tried to fit everything um, into the timeline. The original creative director on the project, a chap called Adam Bullied, and he was also the writer, the initial writer on the project. And he used Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead as a reference, which is a play based on Hamlet, where the audience sees the events of Hamlet unfold between, um, from the point of view of two minor characters. And, and that, that was the approach to the game. He sold me on that approach and I, I really liked it. The way I thought about it is Resident Evil 2 is happening and Leon and Claire are basically going about their business. And what is behind that door? What's going on behind that door? Give us an opportunity to maybe flesh those things out. We also um, included Resident Evil 1 in the timeline originally, and we had oh, ideas. Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had ideas such as starting the game earlier in the timeline, in and around uh, Arkley Mountains with the USS team going to investigate, or the Spec Ops team going to investigate. And so you would have likely have seen enemies, bosses such as Lisa Trevor in the oh, game. So, oh, so yeah, yeah, we were totally invested. And the only thing I can think of when it comes to canon details is there seems to be some differences between the originals and the Chronicles games and there was perhaps an attempt to modernize things or maybe fix things you know go back to something or go back and try and alter the date for some reason that would make more sense if you looked at the bigger picture from the starters as opposed to making each installment as you go so any date changes would have been made with Capcom's insight the whole idea of like the USS teams or Spec Ops teams going near the Arkley area would fit so well with the canon, with the lore that we know. Yes. Like uh, before the events of Resident Evil 1, there's a audio drama that takes place and a whole mutated virus turns all these villagers into these weird, not zombies, but Ganano type things, I guess. Well, after that event ends mm-hmm. and Jill escapes that and everything, the military quarantines that area off and that's all Jill ever knows about it. So having yeah. the military running around in Arkley 
would have fit. And uh, unused concept story stuff for like Resident Evil, t- the original like 1.5 or the old you know, beta RE2 stuff. There was supposed to have been an area where uh, the USS went into what was left of the Spencer Mansion, so that would have fit too, I think. Yeah, yeah, the mansion would would have been included as well. And the only reason those those things didn't happen, there was probably two reasons, either because of time. Resident Evil Operation Raccoon City was incredibly short, just a 12-month development. If you think of something like Max Payne 3, which came out about the same time, that was in the development for years. And, you know, we, we had a year to, to make this game. I'm a bit of an optimist, so I thought, well, yeah, we can still make a good game in this time. And that's the, the thing that I'm most proud of. When when I think about this game, I think about the team. I think, well, we made that game in a year. And I've, I've since been on mobile games with a longer development time. That's a, that's yeah. a real testament to what you guys did. To just to exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it has, you know, single player co-op and multiplayer and each one of those aspects is tuned I mean the, the single player as, does have a narrative it has cinematics and then the, the multiplayer for me it was one of the best multiplayer experiences I played you know every time I got to play test it it was absolutely amazing and I, you know I want to make a shout out to Dave McCannaran wherever he is the, the lead multiplayer lead he did an absolutely awesome job and was a pleasure to work with he really knocked the ball out of the park and uh, he works for Sega now as a producer but what a great game designer I mean really easy to work with great ideas and then as, as a director for me it was an absolute pleasure to play all the game design that he created it was amazing the multiplayer for Operation Raccoon City has been a highlight of all my of my gaming career I've never experienced anything like it since it was really really cool I wish we'd um, made a battle royale in Raccoon City <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> we been... basically did that helicopter <laughs> the survivors mode you know 4v4 for people fighting for four seats on a helicopter was oh, close yeah. enough yeah and i experienced many uh matches where teammates would start betraying each other to get a seat so <laughs> the best thing about I... that mode is the ability yeah. of turning uh friendly fire off and <laughs> the helicopter landing and then it's just free for all it was it was fantastic yeah. I had some many great times where I have a teammate get, about to get in a helicopter into the last seat, so I just run up, push them out of the way, shoot them, let them bleed out, get swarmed by infected, and yeah. I hop in and escape. And that's that's what I love about the game is is those mechanics like the bleed out really works. It attracts the monsters to the person bleeding. And we had the the moment where you could capture someone if you you could sneak up to them. And uh, yeah, I think if you did the melee move, if memory serves me correct, you would knock the person down. And you had the choice of basically shooting them very sort of personally up close in the face or in the stomach to make them bleed out or to hit them. And and that hadn't been done. You know, taking the power away from another user was quite. Uh, um, design decision and uh, one that I love making so um, that's yeah. probably the sadistic side of me you know it's Resident <laughs> Evil we can afford to do this it'll be different let's go for it um, yeah, so there it was were, great. yeah there was lots of gameplay opportunity and that, that's why you know some of the interviews really got to me because I remember reading one interview and it said it's a multiplayer game we were sent one disc didn't play the multiplayer don't like the campaign 3 out of 10 and so you know it's not really a fair review can you imagine they did that today, though, with like Call of Duty and stuff? Like, I've got the new Call of Duty the other day. You haven't even got a campaign. It's just, it's just multiplayer. You're quite right. You know, Call of, the Call of Duty series coming out without a campaign, uh, it would have been uh, destroyed at the time. I think. Yeah. So yeah, really good example. But the one thing you have to do is respect the fans because once it's launched, they own it. You don't own it. So you have to really appreciate the real things that they want in the franchise. 
I'm so fascinated by what you're saying. I've completely lost order of, of who's, <laughs> who's asking the next question. Has, has anyone any idea? Oh, yeah. What sources did you use to implement plot points into the already established storyline? Did you just use your own knowledge of the series, or did Capcom Japan provide Slank 6 with a story consultant? Capcom did have the directors that, that was working on Resident Evil 6, another one that had worked on the Chronicles series, and they were working very closely with us on the project, and they agreed the major plot points in the game. So a lot of these things were established in a very, very early meeting. But as you start to take, you know, locations and characters and start to build the 30 minutes or 45 minutes of gameplay in the location, you start to think about those original games and start to think, what else happened here? What can we do here? And for me and a lot of the team, we put in ideas like the reprogramming of the Nemesis. We put that in because we like the idea of explaining why, as a homage to the movies, why the Nemesis had a minigun and then in Resident Evil 3 had a rocket launcher. We thought, wouldn't it be great if he just broke down and he was repaired? The Wolfpack actually supplied the rocket launcher. That would be awesome. And so th those ideas came rather or organically out of brainstorming. Yeah. We'd sit there and, and really sort of think about what we could do. Um, there was other ideas that we had, like um, putting the uh, tyrants into the dead factory. Those ideas were there to explain why these creatures would be there dead. We had no idea why they, they were there. So we we're trying to provide a backstory and, and make things, even if our game wasn't going to be canon, just to explain things. It was our opportunity to go ahead and try and explain things. So that's what we did. Yeah, I could just hear, hear the care and attention to the series as a fan that, that you have. That's the one, one thing. The most hurtful thing about this whole thing was the idea that this wasn't made by Resident Evil fans for Resident Evil fans. The game design team were Resident Evil fans. And, you know, we want to make the best possible experience we could for Resident Evil fans. And we put, want to put these things in that only hardcore Resident Evil fans would realize. I mean, to the hardcore Resident Evil fan, when he's playing it, he would go, oh, this explains this, why the Nemesis has this weapon in Resident yeah. Evil 3. Oh, and this is why there were dead tyrants there. You know, that was the idea to really sort of provide a backstory for things. And, and also, you know, with the Resident Evil games, the original ones, you're following a single character and you're seeing everything through their eyes. This thing was much, much bigger than that. And I think Operation Raccoon City really sold the idea of it being a war zone and this outbreak being more citywide. Ideally, it could have been an open world game. It would have been great to have yeah. realized the entire city, for example, but that would have oh. taken more than one year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that. We, we were lucky enough to interview the voice of Albert Wesker, Richard Waugh. Yeah. He's a huge fan of RPGs, and, and we were discussing just, just that, an open world Raccoon City, not necessarily hugely wide, but more kind of deep in, in terms of the stories that you can put into that. Yeah, that, that would have been a fantastic game, and, and it sounds like you were the perfect director to put that game in the hands of. Oh, I would have loved to do something like that. It's just a sad thing that now Resident Evil 7 has come out, and it's obviously more survival horror, and then you've got all these survival games that are out there. You know, I was playing uh, Scum the other day, a true hardcore survival game, and it would have been really nice to do something that's more open in a Resident Evil universe, proper survival experience in the city, just trying to escape the city. Something like that would be very, very interesting to do. It's all, all a dream, really. <laughs> <laughs> we were given a, a, a very sort of distinct mandate that yes. this is what you're doing. And so we had to work within those confines. 
But there was other things, you know, some of the aspects like guiding Sherry to safety with the flares. That was quite interesting because in the original design documents, that was it was meant to be spotlights that were there and you move spotlights and she would stay within the spotlight. But then the programmer said, well, we can't do spotlights. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had to invent flares. <laughs> because of the uh, time pressure, you become extremely creative in that time and yeah. have to work around all sorts of problems. It, it's not the ideal. Echo 6. Sherry Birkin is the daughter of William Birkin, the umbrella researcher who contacted us a week before this outbreak. He's disappeared since then, but his daughter might know something of his whereabouts. Help this woman find her. I think some changes did happen. And there were some pictures of, of things. I remember pitching the BOW apocalypse that was in one of the missions and, and things like that came up and they worked their way into the game. Um, though I, I can think of only one mission or one character cha- changing. That's, that's it. What character changed and what the mission was? I can say one word. Wesker. Can you say more than one word? <laughs> Jake, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we wanted a moment in the in the game where Wesker transitioned to Super Wesker, and we wanted to explain that, like we were explaining so many things, the backstory of so many things. It was a bit of fan service. It would have been great to see, and uh, something that we wanted to do, and it was initially agreed upon, I, I believe. But um, you know, these things change. We're working with the franchise holder. Maybe they've got other plans for Wesker, or maybe they don't want to show that moment. So that did change. Spec Ops are after some umbrella intel on a nearby server. Get it before them. Enemy operatives have been eliminated. Mission accomplished. Just a talking point. Uh, Shimachi-san, uh, Naoki Shimachi, who was my translator, who I worked closely with and probably bonded with the most on the project because he and I were always in meetings together, discuss translations, where there was any meaning in the translations that we hadn't considered and things like that. He and I actually cried at one point in the game just because we were so passionate. I, I remember just we wanted to make the game as best as possible. and we We're arguing. There was tears in our eyes about it. I have great respect for Naoki and he had to work, you know, I was working late. Imagine waiting for somebody to finish their work so you can get your work done. Absolutely crazy. I'd been in meetings. I lost my voice through talking, arguing or explaining things to Capcom Japan. It was, it was intense. We didn't have much time. That intensity, I can't really represent, you know, every day is another day closer to release and the game is behind and we have to make progress and sometimes decisions are taken longer than they should sometimes we're being asked to do things we disagree with and yeah it's it's extremely difficult it's incredible to hear about that sensitivity in the translations and getting the meaning right because the translations of the original japanese files from games like remake and resident evil 2 and 3 because the localization the English versions at the time are riddled with errors and inconsistencies. Yeah, yeah it wouldn't surprise me. I know um, the quality of a translation really, really matters in this type of scenario, and it's something you don't really think about. But if you're a native English speaker and you're hiring a, a translator, how hard is that? Think about it. You don't know the quality of that translation at Slant mm. 6, I, I remember they told me a story of before they found Naoki, they had a translator. And you know, after the, uh, the first video conference with that translator, they went, okay, this person can't really speak. 
<laughs> so we were we were so lucky to get Nauki and um yeah i'll tell him about this podcast because he was a resident evil fan too and he he approached it from growing up with the biohazard series so yeah. he was he was strict for me you know he would tell me what he thought about things and we had great discussions about game mechanics and how they you know how games play and he was telling me that in japan instead of a game just being accessible and easy to play one of the challenges is learning how to play it which you don't understand in the west you're just trying to make everything easy and but in japan this is part of the game mechanics we'd talk about things like that philosophy so for me he was a great guy to work with really helped me focus on the japanese market i was so proud that the game was a japanese number one it was a global number one but the fact that it was number one in japan it just really blows my mind to this day you know to think that i'm a designer of a number one game in the country that made me love video games absolutely yeah so it was 30 years more or less to the day i went to japan it was a number one game so for me it felt like full circle but that alone is something far more important to take away from the game than, you know, like you say, lazy journalism written by people that not simply heard this true story behind, yeah. but even had an appreciation for the fact that maybe there was more to the game than yeah. the in terms yeah. of the development. You know, you have to understand that I'm I'm like a huge fan of gaming. That means gaming press too. You know, I was still subscribing to Games TM. I was getting excited. I used to get excited about reviews because all my games prior to this one have been critical successes, so nothing prepared me for this game and how to feel about it can't imagine so if that was something that i'd created myself in any <laughs> genre of art that that i just can't imagine how appalling that must and frustrating that must feel you know it's extremely hard especially if you never faced anything like that before i can't tell you and i knew that we were going to get bad reviews because um a preview copy went out to some sites like ign and we got some feedback about what they were thinking about the game and it wasn't good at this point, it was a bit of a crisis for me. I didn't realize just how fragile I was as a person. I wouldn't want to tell people and work about my insecurities about this project. So I, I spoke to my brother, and um, it was so weird. It was actually the last conversation we had before he died. I said, it's all gone wrong. And I just wrote, and I said, well, there's all these bugs in the game, and, and they haven't been fixed, and I was feeling really bad about things. And then he wrote back to me and he said, it can't be as bad as all that. I mean, you've worked on all these good games. <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. And then the game came out and really surprised us because we had all these bad reviews. But then it was a global number one game. And so the last message I sent to my brother is I say, it's all okay. <laughs> it's a number one game. It's a global number one game. And it was really mind blowing. You had the mm. critical review and then you had people buy it. I ordered a copy and Amazon sent it to my house two days early. So I, along with a bunch of other early adopters who had seen the reviews and everything, were online playing the co-op campaign. It was quite good in a way. The sort of negative reviews work towards some positivity within the game experience. People were saying, it's not as bad as the reviews. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't know they were playing with the game director you know thank god for that you know all of a sudden you know oh, it, wonderful it didn't matter what the press said anymore the fact that i was yeah. having fun with people the gamers yes yeah yeah it was quite funny because i was in the game like a tutorial i was like going up to people and i was killing them <laughs> and then this like other dude was like how do you do that and i'm like uh, telling him the controls he's like dude that's that's awesome and you know in the multiplayer <laughs> in the multiplayer game we took real chances you know we had um, very original modes i thought in the multiplayer 
player, then the game mechanics that we put in were mechanics to allow you to grief people. I mean, we had that mechanic where if you got so close that you could melee them, you could take your time to shoot them in the head or uh, hit them or shoot them in the stomach, make them bleed out and get more points. And things like that were done on purpose because you know how competitive multiplayer games are. If you can get so close to someone to melee them, let them have the opportunity to be successful in that case and reward them with these extra mechanics. And that's what we did. And we took these real chances and it was fun. ORC has one of the most memorable multiplayer experiences I've ever had, and I have never been able to recapture that in any other game. And I mean, I play Halo, I play Call of Duty and stuff, but like that one particular game mode, Survivors, where there's a helicopter coming with four seats, but there's eight characters running around fighting each other, fighting zombies and BLWs. I've never had anything to emulate that rush of an experience. Thank you. I know DMAC, he was such a stalwart. He was a great person to work with, and he really sort of nailed multiplayer. You know, I didn't have to worry about that part of the project. But if only we'd put 100 players in and they were fighting for one spot on that helicopter. Maybe the helicopter came once a fortnight. We'd be rich now. (laughs) Yeah. How fantastic the gameplay was in terms of utilizing the different characteristics of the different characters and how that was completely lost by some of those critics. Yeah, we tried out these ideas in in multiplayer and they they worked. So, you know, it made me think about the Games TM article and what they missed out on. It was like a roller coaster ride. And uh, so I'm I'm just happy that the conversation that ended on a high note with my brother, it didn't matter about review scores anymore. I felt selfish about feeling what I felt about the game. I realized that life is more important than the video game that worked on. So it helped me correct my priorities in my life. You mentioned how good it did in Japan. Uh, it's just a little piece of trivia I always keep around. Uh, I kind of go to Japanese fan sites to see how certain games do because yeah. a lot of people in, on Westerns like, oh, RC sucks. So everybody in the world thinks it sucks, but they don't realize how good it does in Japan. So the Japanese fan base really does like the characters. They still do fan art and fan stories to this day. If you go on like, YouTube and start looking up uh, Operation Raccoon City trailers and stuff like that, the comments are actually filled with people praising the game. It's a bit of a call classic in a sense that's uh yeah uh japan loves it to death when it came out in japan there was bars making operation raccoon city themed drinks so there was like a spec ops alcoholic drink there was uh uss ones and all kinds of stuff like that one (laughs) i remember the most was a uh an alcoholic root beer float uh they had the ice cream scoop like a liquor's brain so oh, they look all out i go to japanese art websites and yeah. there's fan art that still gets posted today of orc stuff capcom keeps using operation raccoon city's locations and characters and artistic style in their mobile games the biohazard clan master team survive outbreak survivor even resident evil 2 remake took some inspiration from operation raccoon city some of the building designs one of the boss fights is taken straight from the game. Tons of stuff like that. So It's really pleasing to hear. Like you said, this is like a cult classic now. It's like Evil Dead when that first came out. Everybody said, this is garbage. Bro, over <laughs> the years, it's become like one of the best horror movies of all time. And I think that's kind of what's going on with Orkman. Honestly, if you go and look on YouTube, like there's loads of people who say, this is an awesome game. And why did it get such bad press? I wouldn't feel bad about it at all. I'd be quite happy that it's, it's grown over time to become really good. Again, it's really good to hear, and maybe I'll continue my therapy by going on YouTube after this. (laughs) (laughs) 
one of the things Capcom did in Japan to market it was they rented out an abandoned hospital, dressed people up as BOWs and zombies, gave the people who went to the hospital USS uniforms, and got the uh, Nerf gun company to make USS Nerf guns. Really jealous that I made a game and they did all that and they didn't even invite me to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next question, Andrew, comes from Alexia Ashford, and she posted at our website forum, Lazy gamers bash this game without playing it to the fullest. If they did, then they'd see much to be enjoyed and respected. I bet if it didn't have Resident Evil in the title and was unassociated with the series, it would get a lot more plaudits. What is your opinion of the critical reviews the game did receive? Do you think the criticisms were fair? And if not, why not? I think part of the criticism is fair, sadly, because of issues like bugs. When it came out, it did have a day one patch, and there were some bugs that you should never ship with. And part of that rests with us, and part of it rests with Capcom. This game could have been PR'd a bit different, and if I think about it, I worked on Skate, very, very good game. I'd worked on narrative-driven games like Colony Wars before, which at the time, you know, there's people saying that there should be more sequels of that game. So I think it, it should have been pointed out who was leading it or directing it, because I read in, not the gaming press, but the actual mainstream press, Britain's most read paper, The Metro, that this Canadian company who destroyed SOCOM is now making Resident Evil. And I mean, that is lazy. I mean, it was a different team with a different director on a brand new engine. It wasn't a reskin SOCOM game because of those three facts. So it, it's incredibly lazy to think of it SOCOM in Resident Evil Colors. That's not the case at all. And it's hugely disrespectful for all the team that was working on it. So, yeah, I think part of the criticism is fair and, and part of it is unfair. Did you feel that you got it sort of enough support in terms of Capcom or the marketing company rebutting those sorts of comments? I don't think we do that enough in AAA. You'll see indie developers do it. They'll go, if they disagree with something, they'll say it as they see it. At Slant 6, we were not allowed to do any of our own PR for, for this project or anything like that. So we support the Capcom machine, I suppose. It's just an annoyance. It's an annoyance that some of the journalists didn't investigate or find out who, who was even on the game. I think it would have been a lot different if they knew the lead designer of Skate was now making a Resident Evil game. Exactly. Yeah. It's a quite a big story that. The industry at that time, we had AAA games, but we also had AA games that were almost AAA, and the industry itself started to shoot itself in the foot with journalists saying these AA games are not as good as AAA games, and then all of a sudden you have less games. And for me, it's a whole part of the industry was nearly destroyed by this kind of journalism where, you know, you're comparing apples to oranges and making conclusions that I don't think sit well with developers or people who want the industry just to do well and have more choice those double a games they would take chances they would do things they would do things like mind control different gameplay mechanics that maybe you wouldn't put in a triple a game till it's you know it's been tested in some form and they took risks thankfully we have this massive indie community that was really starting out in the late 2000s and now a lot of the creative ideas i think come from that part of the industry but at the time it was quite strange to have reviews like this game got three out of 10 from some reviewers and that means to me the game is unplayable that's yeah. three out of ten for me yeah so it was a little bit unfair 
What you said yeah. about double A games, that was brilliant. <laughs> Fair play. What you just said yeah. about the double A games and triple A games, because now in like PlayStation 4, probably the worst console I've ever owned because it's just lack of games. It's either indie or it's triple A and there's yeah. no middle ground. There's no creative yeah. uh, games coming out. There's no new IPs. I would agree with that entirely. <laughs> yeah, what you just said, Andy, was like, oh, that's what's going on. That's exactly what's going on with the industry is they've yeah, taken I mean- out the middleman. Yeah, exactly. From my point of view, there was always an opportunity to maybe get a few million dollars and invest in something where you can perhaps, you know, polish something like a solid gameplay mechanic or something like that and or make a nice story. And But you're not going to get the seven years to develop it. And you're not going to get the hundreds of millions of dollars to make it. So there was this middle ground that existed. And I think around this time with the industry, anything that wasn't like AAA, anything that wasn't like a Call of Duty that came out was just getting slated. And it, it was one game after another and I, I like those games you know games yeah. like The Darkness and stuff like that that came out which take a bit of a risk do and something was different you, yeah. they all got to start somewhere so yeah and if you play the original Uncharted there's moments in that where for example when you go underground and you have those zombies chapter 19 unwanted guests they do a bit of horror and it's very disjointed but to be honest it, it's like they were given a chance to do something and a few years earlier I think than, than Resident Evil they got plaudits for the gameplay but for me, you know, I would say that level is unpolished. But the fact that I got through the entire game to that point and then the, the boss fights at the end, I still love the game. I, th- I still think it had way more merits and it's almost incomparable because that game probably had a, a different development cycle to what we had. Definitely not produced in a year, but probably had constraints on it too. There was other games that somewhere like probably Operation Raccoon City that I don't think were truly AAA and didn't have the truly AAA budget. But there was a space there to make those sort of games and to take chances and do something differently that almost got destroyed. Or, In fact, I remember speaking to my uh, colleague Thomas Pirinen, who was co-game director on this game. I remember us having a conversation about it saying, you know, the space is gone because of the reviews. And that's sad. It's like, why are the reviews killing their own industry? Don't, don't they get it? If they keep saying that everything's rubbish, there'll be no games left to review. You know, <laughs> you'll just have your Rockstar release every five years, yeah. EA annually, and, and that'll be it. You'll never um, get your Alan Wakes or your Uncharted or nothing, man, because yeah. you've just dumped on it. <laughs> Andrew, you'll know some of the most innovative and unique the most iconic and most famous games were being created by people in in the UK on these home computers in the 80s, building them in their back bedrooms. I mean, there was some some good parts of the press. I, I got to meet lots of European press, and we talked about the games that we played when we were growing up. And to be honest, those reviews that I got from those press members were very positive. So it does make a difference when you meet these people and you talk to them and you express what it is that you're trying to do. I was going to ask USS Command what the press was like in America at the time. Places kept calling it Gears of War ripoff. I shouldn't have asked. Sorry, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's perfectly fine because um, I was in San Francisco and leaving GDC and going into a game store. Operation Raccoon City was on the screen. I was just in there to buy a game. I don't just follow my own game round. <laughs> I remember this guy going, "Hey, what's that game? Is that is that like a Resident Evil crossed with Gears of War?" And the guy behind the counter went, "Yeah, <laughs> awesome!" And I was like, oh, "Cool." <laughs> From 387 from North America, he asked, what was the name of the engine used and what motivated the studio to create one for this game? The name of the engine was called Hexane, and it was named by an internal contest, I believe. But it was a, it was a brand new engine. Why did we build an engine? Because the company had so many tech people at the top. 
they wanted to make a commercial game engine. And so I actually remember there were two game engines being developed. There was the one that we were using, and then there was almost like a version two that was much better, and it had vehicles in it and things like that. (laughs) (laughs) But we couldn't move on to version two because that would take too much time. The opportunity to use it was not there because of lack of time. In my opinion, the second engine development was always a bit of a waste of time because I just wanted more resources for my projects, trying to help Sun 6 have a future beyond Resident Evil. But there was a lot of lazy press that would compare us to the SOCOM games that the studio made before. And that really, really angered me because, you know, they, they weren't telling the right story. Well, that's um, the first thing interesting what the other guys have to say. But that was my first experience with the game was, was hearing and literally read, reading that and, and seeing it in forums. I can tell you that we studied Call of Duty, we studied Halo, we studied the best games that had shooting in them, and we tried to get the response time, for example, as close to Halo as we possibly could, and we got software to time how many milliseconds there was between pressing the trigger and getting response, so we could be on par with the best AAA games, so everything was completely redone, and it wasn't a case of reskinning SOCOM. We need to cover our tracks. No one can know Umbrella was involved. Failure is not an option. next question comes from Wesker Child. This game has a special place in my heart because it was the first series instalment to make Raccoon City really feel like the war zone it must have been. You did a great job making the streets and locations feel frenzied like Outbreak. Did Capcom put any tight restrictions on you and the development team or specific input that had to be used and how heavily were Capcom Japan involved? It's nice to get a compliment about this game. I'm glad that people realized that aspect because that was something that we thought we had an opportunity to do. We put more than a year of our lives into it in in many ways. We went beyond the nine to five working hours to try and achieve that. I think it was very um, collaborative. I remember pitching the idea of bombarding Raccoon City with bio-organic weapons. And I remember Sasaki-san really liking that concept. And that meeting was, was one of those joyous moments when you're creating something. We called it the B.O.W. Apocalypse and Capcom just loved that idea. It felt like we put a missing piece into a jigsaw, you know, it explained quite a lot of why things have, have happened. So, yeah, it was a, a very good moment. Just, to, you know, have that collaboration was just absolutely awesome. The idea with the apocalypse, why is this happening? Why are these uh, monsters on the streets? You know, and there's other ideas, other bits of fiction like Operation Watchdog. Talking about it as fans, those sort of ideas sort of percolated and become the basis of actual missions in the game. We did have the location and we did have the characters, but how everything unfolded was entirely up to to us and this concept of working with Capcom Japan, pitching to them, then pitching to us and working together was truly the fun part of working on this project. Who wrote the script stuff for ORC mostly? Was that Slant 6 or was that Capcom? Or is that, again, is that just a bit of both? (laughs) It's a bit of both. We did some writing in-house. The writing was taken into Capcom Osaka. They did an alternative version of the script, and then it was brought back to us. And we basically did maybe an edit on that just to make sure everything sounded correct. And then it was recorded, so it was it was fairly collaborative. They did make decisions. There aren't multiple types of ammo and things like that because those ideas, I remember just being mandated to us that they didn't want the inventory system, for example, from Resident Evil. So in terms of in- inventory systems and things like that, there were restrictions imposed on us and we had to come up with new designs and things like that. 
So they were involved, and we had um, daily communications. Part of my job was to communicate. Japan, Osaka would come online, and and I would have to make sure that they got answers to any questions they had at that time. And there were weekly video conferences. As the project went on, uh, Capcom Osaka staff came, and uh, and they worked with us more closely day to day, staying in Vancouver for long periods of time. So it it did feel like a, a collaboration. They understood that they were making Resident Evil 6, and maybe sometimes we were going too closely to what their vision was of that game. So they would say, "No, you know, you have to do something different." But it was it was very organic. I felt like, as I've always felt, I'm working with really talented people, and we're trying to make the best possible decisions we can. When I first asked that, you mentioned something about ammo. Was there different types of ammo planned? That's part of the DNA of Resident Evil, the survival horror series, is matching the ammo with the gun. And if I was going to design the game, I would have probably kept it like that. It would have been a bit more real to find the right kind of ammo for your weapon and would have made the experience a little bit more survival horror in that you would have been having to get the right kind of weaponry. And I kind of felt that that would elevate the gameplay. But at the end of the day, decisions were made. And whether they were made because of time or whether they were made because it would infringe on another game that they they had in mind it just meant that those decisions would fluctuate from time to time away from what you'd want them to be it almost feels and did you feel at that stage that you're dealing with a company that maybe were almost insecure about their decision to give this game out to a third-party developer you know, I, I think it was an interesting time. I don't know what the Capcom politics was like, but I know KG Inafune, he'd left after this deal was secured. But Inafune-san was there when we got this deal, and I felt some things did change after that. I just had the feeling that, you know, you definitely have changes in direction. If you have different managers at work, it's it's going to change you or it's going to affect the company in some way. And I, I felt that. It's a shame that they didn't have the confidence to allow you to make more creative freedom and without that restrictions and even just to change things. You know, like you say, you know, quality control and maybe let's yeah. change that and not to have that yeah. decision set in stone. And the product, the end product would have been so much better. This is a hard question for me to answer because if I answer it and say what I think it would be nice to have more creative control, then it perhaps means that I wasn't happy with the creative direction I was receiving from Capcom Japan. You know, it's not for me to say whether I'm a, a better individual than people that I was working with to essentially shape the experience, but I would have loved to direct this cut of the game <laughs> and have gone back yes. and, and just changed things in the way, you know, that I wanted to. You know, kind of like a, a Richard Donner special, maybe if there's a team <laughs> out there who wants to make Operation Raccoon City to direct this cut, get in touch. And... <laughs> oh my word, I mean, the fans would be queuing up. <laughs> Maybe we can make that game sometime. <laughs> to ensure Umbrella's survival, the story of what happened must never be told. We need to make sure the truth dies, along with each scrap of evidence and every survivor. Why are you doing this? For Umbrella? Good evening. Hope you haven't forgotten your friend Nikolai. How do you like my little contraptions? This question comes from BSA Arclay, and he asks, what made you choose the characters of Leon and Claire to play the game's two main hero characters? And we also see Carlos, Jill, and Nikolai. They make appearances in the game as well. Were there other characters you considered including, and were you okay. tied to a specific cast from a particular timeline? 
they were hero characters because um, the producer wanted uh, the Kill Leon plot, so it wouldn't it wouldn't have worked if we chose Jill and Chris. <laughs> but to be quite honest, that's that's why it's in there. We needed to put Leon into the game, so that means we're putting Claire into the game. You also mentioned Wesker as well. Yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> we're not going to drop it, are we? <laughs> So there was a mission idea. It's super vague. I obviously mentioned the Arkley stuff as well with Lisa Trevor in it. So there were, there were some ideas of maybe expanding the timeline, doing some more things. We wanted to show Wesker becoming super Wesker. See how he, he becomes like an addictive personality. We wanted to show a bit of his character, growth in his character. When he turns up in Resident Evil 5, mm-hmm. he's almost a vastly exaggerated version of what you see in Code Veronica. So it would have been interesting yeah. to have seen that development. Yeah, that was something we would really like to showcase. There were certainly more ideas along those lines that we wanted to, to kind of pursue, even if it wasn't for Operation Raccoon City, but the, you know, the next game that we're thinking of doing. We actually got the Umbrella Chronicles novel translated on the website. In that novel, it mentions that Wesker was actually parked outside in Raccoon City, sat in his Jeep watching all the action. They elaborate on his powers and he can actually control BOWs using his mind. (laughs) Would have got out the Jeep, injected himself and turned it to Neo. I think, you know, you have to bear in mind that Capcom Japan have got this, they're not just making one Resident Evil product, they're making many, so maybe they're like, everybody wants to put Wesker in their games, and they're like, no. (laughs) This is supposed to be four, right? Remember I told you there was a meeting that happened before I joined? The characters were chosen in that meeting. There was a creative director called Adam Bullied, and a designer went to a meeting with Capcom, and they picked out uh, some plot points and some characters. So that's the reasons they were chosen, because of what happened in that meeting. But there was other characters in the game that were cut. Like the, we had a giant moth, and a giant moth was going to be based in the city hall. So the city hall location was built for the giant moth. And then Keiji Inafune left uh, Capcom. When he left, that was one of the changes <laughs> that came from Capcom Japan, which is uh, we don't need the giant moth anymore. Did they give you any particular reason? Yeah, I think Inafune-san is scared of moths, although I don't want to go to <laughs> depressed. <laughs> Anyway, so the giant moth was removed, but but it's really funny because later on, you know, when we're doing long hours and we're trying to fit gameplay in there, it was one of the first locations we did. I remember the level designer going, I designed this for a moth! (laughs) It was this great moment because obviously it wasn't designed for whatever we were doing in, in that city hall. Some of those plot points you wanted to revisit, though, they're like a, a amazing ideas, like USS going back to the Arclay and check, you know, checking the area, showing Wesker. They, they're amazing ideas, and they would have been really cool to see that stuff. Like, it would have been. I remember there being level designs for those things, maybe some crude blockouts of the area that, that were made by a level designer, but we definitely put some thought towards it. And then it was caught when we thought about actually we have to make this thing in a year. So <laughs> <laughs> there's press copies of Operation Raccoon City. The case that Hulk's carrying in the game, when he steals the G-Virus, they come in a little case like that. It comes with the G-Virus tissue sample, but it comes with a little document, and the document does mention Umbrella's doing something in Arclay. 
there is definitely a lore piece somewhere for and it's either an insert evil or somewhere else that mentions that umbrella's doing stuff in arkley speaking of characters we've got the next question coming from batman and he says i believe the game started out as a canon title but then capcom japan changed their minds halfway through development is this the case how much free reign did you have with the full cast of characters problems with using uh, trying to make this kind of game where we know the characters maybe exist after the game because we've got this pot point that's kill leon okay you can have this this dream in the operation raccoon city where you do kill leon but everyone else kind of makes almost like cameos in the in the game so we know that they're gonna exist afterwards and we if we just kill every character off then <laughs> we'd be destroying <laughs> the entire timeline so yeah there was i remember being frustrated because it becomes a bit like the a-team where nobody ever dies <laughs> you got all these characters showing up and all these bullets go into a jeep it explodes but then you see the characters sort of always getting away and so one of the things that we had to do is make sure that if there was any sort of showdown that it kind of feels like maybe they've survived so that the fans can think about what might have happened to them and you you run into the same sort of problems that the prequels have you know like star wars prequels we know that anakin's going to become darth vader so Mm. it's it's very hard thing to do because you kind of know what the plot is if you're familiar with it the kill leon plot is it's the most non-canon thing that we can do i know (laughs) it might be popular with fans of chris redfield and jill valentine we had other ideas for what the end of the game could have been like a showdown with the other side where the other the other side become bosses so every time you play through wolfpack are facing off against the spec ops for example we tried the, as best we could to sort of interlace everything we had to sort of make sure the plot ended up with leon in in a certain sort of place to make that plot happen we had to introduce him into the game so it's a hard thing to do when you got somebody saying this is the plot this is one of the hooks of the game so i'm sure the levels do at that point diverge from the first levels in the game which are trying to tie the game as closely as they can to the canon that's already established it's a hard crescendo i think to have especially if the character is so well known it makes sense if, if it's part of the canon and you can totally obliterate the guy you know that's kind of cool all you should have done is just like killed him off in the first 30 seconds and then <laughs> <laughs> you know what that might have worked <laughs> <laughs> that would have worked for me <laughs> why are you doing this for umbrella money <clears throat> what's in it for you huh was the word even mentioned was the principle of this being part of the continued established timeline brought up with you no not at all as i said if you have kawata san say kill leon (laughs) yeah you don't argue (laughs) you don't argue and you you get on with it and you'd be professional so i I guess we had what i call restricted restricted free reign where we were able to do some things with the characters um an example is um nikolai when he when you come across nikolai in the city hall i thought about that moment long and hard and he comes through the door, the USS stand down almost immediately. He presents himself, you know, as this badass guy that he is. And I just thought, in an outbreak, you know, I can't, I couldn't help but think about the Iranian embassy, you know, the SAS in the UK. And yeah. the Special Forces soldiers just treated everyone like they were a terrorist, like they were guilty. At the time, the hostages um, and everybody else yeah. who was, was freed, they explained that we were all treated like terrorists. And so I felt, you know, when Nikolai came through the door, somebody should restrain him in in some way, the guns should remain cocked until they know exactly who this guy is, yeah. and then they let him go. He's one of the marquee characters of the franchise, so we had to treat him with kid gloves. 
there's been like fan debate that the main games are the main canon and then the side games like your chronicles they're more like side stories which can be open to interpretation yeah i think that's a good way of thinking about it i used to say we're not a numbered game so if we had anything controversial it was you know the fact that we didn't have the number meant we weren't part of the canon I remember them being excited about some of these things just as we were because in Operation Raccoon City you do see things and you do do witness things and it could explain why that appears in the numbered series in the way it appears so from that point of view it's almost it's almost like canon we've explained why there's dead tyrants and the dead factory that sort of thing had a question mark over it and we got to answer it so from that point of view it comes extremely close to canon as far as I'm concerned, it, it comes as close as the Umbrella or Dark Side Chronicles does. Both of those games try to explain things like you all did with Operation Raccoon City. But in both cases, those explanations they do, they only go so far. For Dark Side Chronicles, there's a whole backstory about how Richard got bit by a snake. But the problem with that level in Umbrella Chronicles is it only ties into Umbrella Chronicles itself. It doesn't work with the original Resident Evil. Right. It gives you that answer, but it doesn't fit perfectly, so... Like I said, I think it did a good job trying its best, you know, in fitting things like that. Maybe the background materials of Oak could fit. Maybe Wolfpack, some of the inserted evil stuff. That all seems to fit rather well with the canon. Yeah. There's a tons of like, lore out there for ORC, and uh, pretty much all of it can fit until you get to that Kill Leon bit. And, and the thing is, though, when you look look at the level where you kill Leon at or go to kill him, that location is new to the universe. Like It's not a revisited or a reinterpretation of a previous location. Yeah. So you could take that entire area as part of the lore, too. And honestly, it kind of seems like they did use some of the uh, lore stuff from ORC in some of their games, like Umbrella Corpse does this big CQC thing, and they, they're basically basing their CQC combat styles off of the same styles and techniques that the uh, Umbrella Security Service used. And the only time we ever got lore stating that the Umbrella Security Service used that type of technique is Operation Raccoon City stuff. Even their weapons, these melee weapons they use in the game that they use to fight off zombies and stuff, and Umbrella Corpse, they look very similar to the kind of melee weapons that Lupo has on her back. Awesome. I think, you know, obviously we left a mark and some inspiration for Capcom to take. As I said, they were involved in the creation of it too, so it was done by fans for fans. For me, it was a bit of a dream to explain why some things happened, and it was definitely good to work on. So this question comes from USS Command, the Oracle Dragon from Pennsylvania, and BSA Arclay from Wales. It's a, it's a real Crimson Head Elder team question. In an article by Polygon, it was stated that the game underwent heavy editing and that the final build did not reflect your original concept and vision for Operation Raccoon City. How accurate a statement is that? What were the reasons for any such disparity? And can you highlight any of your ideas and gameplay mechanics that remain on the cutting room floor? The game and the DLC was meant to be one product, so the game was always meant to be you choose your side, Umbrella or the Spec Ops. So that's how the game was designed. So that is already a big, big change or departure from the original vision. At some point in the project, there was obviously an issue where we said, we just can't do everything in the time that we have. And that decision was made, and thankfully it meant better missions for the DLC. But there was also other things. We had um, game mechanics in there, like one of the pan mechanics was to jump over cover. That would have dramatically changed the game. That's the big frustration, is you got this special forces guy and he can't hop over cover. 
but it was a production decision to cut that before we'd got it in. And I remember the lead animator saying, I can get into the game really fast. I remember the programmer, the lead gameplay programmer saying, yeah, we can do this. And um, it should have been repaired for the DLC. We should have just fixed it. We should have patched it. I know that we did the motion capture for it and it was planned. And then there's other things, you know, the, the story was um, really taken in-house by Capcom. They did a majority of the writing themselves. The actual writing was translated, I think, by their localization team back into English. And that was the script that I received to, to record. And I, I remember spending a weekend. I'm not a writer. Uh, I've done some dialogue scripts and things like that o- o- over different games. And neither are the design team. But I remember we were, our writers at this point, probably weren't contracted anymore. And we had to do a whole host of edits to make the game a bit more cohesive in English. So yeah, they're the sort of things that changed and were fairly dramatic. I think the the fact as well that the script was recorded so early on meant that we didn't cover the gameplay mechanics like the quick draw mechanic that was put in the game because we had no idea that we'd make that mechanic because we did our pre-production during the production, essentially. And we came up with game mechanics after the game was greenlit as opposed to before it being greenlit. So yeah, it was very intense as a production. Would have benefited from extra time and a bit more writing at the end, I think. Wesker's report from North America, he says the game treads the line of being a what-if scenario. That almost works with the overall canon, but not quite. (laughs) (laughs) I would say 65 to 70% works seamlessly, which is an accomplishment to be sure. Did the early script for the game follow the canon narrative that preceded it more closely than the retail, or was it a case of the opposite, where the plot was all over the place and you had to pull in the reins? <laughs> I guess the only difference is really the Spec Ops campaign and the USS campaign were meant to be shipped together. So from a game point of view, it was designed so you unlocked each chapter and each chapter had two options. You either play as the government or you could play as USS. Obviously that didn't happen and again that's mostly probably to do with the production issue of trying to make the game in one year if he keeps bleeding he's gonna attract the entire neighborhood quiet the actual plot side was really devised by the original creative director, Adam Bullied. So he was on there during the pre-production and the first part of production. The way I remember it is uh, trying to do as best we can to make, make sure the game would feel like Claire or Leon could be in the next room, but this is what was going on in the next room. The perspective of other characters yeah. perfectly with what had happened with the narrative of the of the main characters we'd already seen. Yeah, so we were trying to fit the same beats and everything, and that's that's why when we were in the RPD and Claire and Leon are introduced into the game, for me as a fan, I just went, oh, that's great. <laughs> I don't care why it's there. It's just fantastic. It just explains to me where I am in the timeline of the Resident Evil universe. It could have been in the game a lot more smoothly than that, to be quite frank. But as I said, we had all these issues with time and process and creating the levels that we had to just try and make sure it worked. We knew that this was going to happen in a level. Here's the map as it is. We made some extensions to it and we did things to make sure that we tried to make it as cohesive as possible. And it, it was just really hard work to do. I'm glad things like that were in the game. 
Absolutely. Mm. And, and it really does sound like you did the absolute best you really could. And, and, and I'm so pleased that this sort of unheard story will be heard now by the fans. Yeah, yeah. That mission was actually the E3 demo and it started with them shoot at Leon and he, he shoots back at you and then we go into a garage and there's liquors and then we go outside the garage and there's there's all sorts happening and then there's wolf pack become expendable and the umbrella decides, you know what, we're going to deploy bioorganic weapons. For me, that was all really, really cool stuff the panic in Leon and watching down and Leon was being hunted down and was about to be killed and I thought it was absolutely fantastic and it really enthused me for the yeah. game. Yeah, yeah, you know, those sort of things. We talked about an extra year, that would have been something that could have been really polished with just more cinematics of Leon, you know, getting panicked and going out and just refining the cinematics of the bioorganic weapons coming down and I always wanted uh, one of the pods to just go in a building, like what the hell is that, you know, and then for a hunter to explode out the bottom. Oh, yeah, things like fantastic. that, you know, just amp it up. Yoke asks, what was the process you and your team went through to create the characters and detailed biographies of the Wolfpack and Echo 6 teams? Interesting. Good question. Adam Bullied, the creative director, wrote the original bios. And the characters, I, I can say, owe a lot to Saturday morning television. Um, <laughs> they're interesting designs, though, and I think they were very progressive. Who do we kill next? The process defining the characters is, for me, a best practice. What they did is they made sure that each character had a quirk that made them interesting. And I remember, you know, Beltway had his prosthetic leg from an explosive accident, and Vector had the floor of being like a narcissistic ninja, and Bertha was a torturer, you know, so that all these things were kind of great. I received the bios from Adam and they revealed a lot more about their personalities than we ever showed anybody else. You know, I remember yeah. Bertha being an early bio at Dominatrix. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Adam did fantastic work of defining the characters. And then the other thing was their abilities. We had to think about abilities that would complement one another. So if you were playing with the characters, there was actually a reason for you to choose the different character. It was a demolition expert, it was a medic, that sort of thing. But on top of that, they had those other abilities like this ability to go invisible, uh, to mimic, you know, which were put in the game for multiplayer. So then they had that layer where the abilities yeah. were agreed. And they all had initially 10 abilities, which is just way too much when you're making a game. Yeah. yeah. So we had to cut half the abilities. So that goes back to the last question. When Andrew was doing the Orc Fest, he mm -hmm. took a picture of the ability bar and asked me if that was it because like, there is empty spots that looks like more stuff should be there. Oh. Uh, yeah, I do, I do remember we were having more in the game and then uh, the game was going to be launched even earlier. And there was a meeting in E3 and I remember I was taking backstage, if you think of it. <laughs> You've got all the Capcom pods with the game showing and then I went into a room with a translator from marketing and Kawata-san and he said, uh, what do you think? I remember looking around the show and thinking we've got all the threes this year we've got Modern Combat 3 Battlefield 3 Saints Row 3 and we're planned to come out in the middle of all those games and I don't think it's the best idea and then I talked about Skate 2 coming out in the new year and how it sold 80% above expectation 
So literally the decision was more or less made during that E3 to move the game back to the release date. So for me, it was a very productive E3. I wasn't expecting to be roped into a meeting and, and to be discussing the release date because I was there just to enjoy the show, not in a, an official capacity. So um, yeah, it was it was very good to have that meeting and talk about things. And I know in that meeting, the number of abilities got cut because I mentioned it as being a struggle for us to make. So I think there must have been five at the time and it must have been reduced to three and made things a lot easier for us to build. You wouldn't happen to remember any of the uh, cut abilities? If I had design documents, maybe, but I, I can't remember. All right. Years ago, I had made note of the different versions of the uh, character profiles. For whatever reason, the U.S. version of the Echo 6 Spec Op profile is different from the U.K. version. U.K. version is different from Japan. The Japanese combines both, but still adds more stuff. I just thought that was just something noteworthy because they do that for all the like all the characters, even uh, one from the multiplayer called Lone Wolf. The mm-hmm. U.S. version just as that's another name for uh nighthawk but the japanese version goes it gives him an entire paragraph explaining how he's really good with technology good with guns close quarters combat they call him lone wolf because he's a loner he doesn't like working with others and all that stuff oh right i think it's really interesting how there's that weird discrepancy with character profiles that should probably be the same across the board I just wondered if there's any sort of sensitivity, whether they decided to American for the UK audience or something. I don't, I don't know. I didn't even know there was any difference until you brought that up. It's funny you say that some of the biographies were held back as well, some of the information, because I was reading the concept art, the Japanese one, and it had a lot of information in there, which I'd never heard before. That was in the Japanese guide only. Did that come from Capcom or yourselves? Or? You know what? There was always questions that I needed to answer for Capcom Japan. So there was always documents that I was sending right at the end of the day. I remember sending documents about the bios and things like that. So there's a possibility that that information came from the team. At the same time, they took a lot of the writing in-house, so there's a possibility that they never translated something back to us, maybe. So it'd be really interesting to read it. Felt we yep. got kicked out of the army because he set an explosive in the military toilets and killed someone. <laughs> like a I, can't I, I don't know. <laughs> Was that your fault, Andrew? <laughs> You know, I had been uh, working for six months without any time off. Who knows? If somebody said, why did Beltway leave (laughs) the army? I I might have written that and sent it over in an email that's long forgotten about. Right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) As I said, it's it's got a bit of a dark side. Um, With the the Umbrella characters, we did really explore that. Being brave enough to put in a character like DA, which um, I don't know if you're familiar with DA in, in America. It means don't ask, which is his nickname. We were trying to push the boundaries a little bit. Boundaries were pushed and then they were pushed back a little bit. That's what's so great about them, though, because like George Trevor said, they're all kind of got their individual personality, which reflections back to stars and why I love the stars members like Forrest and Joseph, because they all got these different personalities. And then to an extension, Predator. Yeah, like- Predator for me was hugely influential. And when I went to Blur Studios to kick off the trailer with um, Akabi-san and Kawata-san, it was really interesting because they had um, a treatment of what the script could be. And one of them was kind of like Predator. It was the helicopter riding to Raccoon City and then talking to one another you know it was totally totally Predator 
my contribution to that trailer was to say, I really like that bit. And then they had another treatment, which was the action sequence of, of hunting down Leon and said, I really like that bit. And then they had the back to back sequence being surrounded by a horde of zombies. And I really like that bit. So I said, keep up them all together. And that <laughs> becomes the basis of what the trailer is. Totally professional, those guys, and really awesome to work with. But when we arrived, they had three equally good descriptions of how they could show off these characters. And I said, can we combine them all? And then I took them through each of the bios, which were the bios that had been lightened of some details. I remember explaining the key ability, you know, like Vector, he can go invisible. Can we work that in? And then we got literally the next version of the script was more or less the one that became the basis of the first trailer with the Umbrella guys in it. So it was good. A very productive day that, that day. This is also fascinating. This is supposed to be full, right? Identify yourself. Kill them all. They were all very, very gritty, and the bios were fantastic. Those quirks, like the prosthetic leg, which was interesting, really separates that character from the rest. You used the word they're gritty. I don't know what the other guys think, but that very much marks this team out as far more interesting and engaging than the Breakfast Club that we're getting with us. So that's a reference for the teenagers there. Hardly. <laughs> anyone under the age of 35 won't know what I mean. The Project Resistance team. We've got this yeah. very college-type... Teeny barbers. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, thanks, Andrew. Teeny boppers and just far from... <laughs> Overall, Adam did a fantastic job, and then I had to do an iteration of the bio, so... I lightened up the, some of the bios based on feedback. So we did have another iteration of bios, which is quite interesting. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see what they ended up with, because obviously Capcom had the first set, they had the second set. Yeah, I can send them to you. Cool, they, they, cool. they basically more of an extension, like um, like Party Girl was like, um, she'd attend like pool Horror. parties and stuff like that. Yeah, she was like a, a, a whore, basically. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. <laughs> Okay, well, maybe that wasn't ahead of our time, that, that bio. <laughs> um. <laughs> All those particular moves and, and specific styles that they have and, and their techniques, yes. how fantastic the game can be when you've got it on multiplayer and different players are utilising different aspects of those special moves. Yeah, the abilities were designed to complement one another, and I think it does a good job of doing that. You had one character, for example, that could reveal their locations to everybody else, so putting them on your team was a great thing to do. You obviously had the, the class-type stuff too, so you had a medic who could heal with more health spray and things. I remember just being really excited about those abilities. We're entering the lab of Dr. William Birkin. A scientist attempting to sell classified samples of a weaponized virus strain to the U.S. government. Intercept Birkin and secure the G-Virus. Again, this question comes from USS Command and BSA Arclay. The trailers for Resident Evil Operation Raccoon City have lines, scenes, locations, and even a character not seen in the retail version. Can you elaborate on these and any other beta materials and ideas? The trailers were kicked off about eight weeks into the game design. The way I see the game is the pre-production was 
very, very shallow. So there wasn't a lot of game design information that came out of the pre-pro. And so when the game was greenlit, we really started to produce the game. And about two months later, I remember being invited to Blair Studios with Kuwata-san and uh, another producer slash uh, translator from Capcom. They had three treatments about um, the USS guys. The three treatments were a sequence where they're hunting Leon, and then there's a sequence where they're coming in on a helicopter predator-esque you know team building type of dialogue they're doing a lot of banter and then there was a back-to-back epic slow motion sequence repelling all the zombies what i felt and what i give as written feedback to blair was it'd be great if you could combine all three things and when i was in front of them kicking off that with uh, kuata-san i went through all the characters and their abilities the most iconic abilities so with vector would be the invisibility and said that it would be great if we could showcase the characters in those trailers and, th- and then they came Came back with the awesome script that they chose to do which was the first teaser was just the uss only i believe and then um there was a, a cost saving idea that maybe we could use some of the footage and locations again with the other team and create a, you know the triple impact trailer so that was all discussed in this meeting hey this is a quarantine zone identify yourself don't take another step We've got a T-103 Tyrant approaching. Blur Studios, they do amazing work. I'm a big fan of theirs because they do cutscenes and stuff and even trailers for the Halo series. If you go look at the Halo Wars 2 cutscenes, some of that stuff is lifelike. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think they also nailed the writing more than the main game, actually. We we had their writers working on the game, I think. And this is no disrespect to the writers that we had, but I really felt they just grasped the characters a bit more. You know, they did an excellent job. I think you're right. What you said this is bang on because Vectra in that trailer, he got a lot of personality in, in the trailer. Like You could see that he was a narcissist. You could see he was awesome. Absolutely amazing. They just nailed it. No time for samples, for us. One thing that I did notice when the trailer was done is I remember one guy asking, do they have flashlights? And I said, yes, they do. And um, as I've alluded to, lights were hard in our game. <laughs> the characters don't have flashlights in the game. So that's a, a big discrepancy I remember. <laughs> going to your Resident Evil 4 days that you were particularly keen on them having. Yeah, yeah, I really wanted flashlights. I think everything is more scary with flashlight, you know, it just adds more movement to the scene. If you're shining around the torch, the shadows move more dynamically. So for me, adding a flashlight, turning the lights off just makes everything more scary. And this is something that I really wanted in the game because imagine if you're playing with four guys and they're all moving around torches. All of a sudden you've got a lot of dynamic movement. So from the game... Yeah, yeah, it would have been amazing. We wouldn't have had to do much work to make the game really, really scary. But, you know, in the end, we made a very dark game without flashlights and (laughs) the gamma correction was hidden in the menu. And we didn't even have that usual sort of gamma correction screen when it was loading because of time implications. So you can correct the gamma of the game. So when the reviews are going, oh, it's too dark, it's because they didn't know they could do that. Those sort of mistakes of just the basics just being wrong are very hard to live with. And this has got nothing to do with Capcom. This is more the Science 6 side of things. 
not really sort of going, yeah, we're going to put the gamma correction in. I would have loved to have fixed all those just tiny problems. I'm not a big fan of Resident Evil 4, but one of my particular favourites of that journey is when you play as Ashley, the only time in the game when you're using that flashlight and it harks back actually to Kamora-san's original scenarios that he created for the, the beta version of Resident Evil 4 where you are heavily reliant on, on a flashlight. And yeah, as, as you say, it just creates so much more atmosphere and tension. Yeah, yeah, it so does. We could have added extra mechanics like batteries for the flashlights and things like that. Oh, all sorts. oh my god, yeah. You know, we, there's lots of things we could have done. Flashlights have been in games for years. Why can't we do this? You know, Haunted House had a flashlight on the Atari. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> The additional frustration, it sounds like you were often not given explanations for, for these omissions. Yeah, there were definitely confrontations about them. I, I just don't want to go into that aspect because yeah, yeah. it becomes incredibly personal when you're, you're going, oh, this person said this and I don't want to go there. All I know is I wanted to do those things. I know I said I, I worked long hours, but it wasn't like the, the nightmare scenarios that are being depicted by Kotaku about Red Dead Redemption. It wasn't anything like that. It was hard work, but it was mostly hard work for the people who liked the project. I know that's hard to explain. Like me, I didn't, I wasn't told to go in on, on a Saturday or a Sunday, but I actually wanted to go in and maybe just do the work that I couldn't do during the week, you know, yeah. things like that. So there was always, I think there was a lot of passion on the project. With a, a production of that size, you have a combination of people that really care about Resident Evil, and then you have other people, they've got other responsibilities, they've got a life after work. You have all those things on a team, and it's a very hard thing to do to try and get everything done. So you can't constantly making trade-offs and that's why you have flares instead of flashlights right we didn't want to push any harder than we were pushing we were already getting the game done in a year you know for a lot of people is very tough from a uss command and some guy from a rainy part of europe no one cares about (laughs) (laughs) anyway uh, throughout the game there are many small details in the textures be it name shops businesses books and everyday products some of which seem particularly detailed also this is matched by the superb concept art extremely faithful to the original games resident evil 2 and 3 were these items meant to be part of something bigger perhaps more elaborate scenarios I think it's a case of having an exceptionally well-drilled art team trying to recreate Raccoon City, trying to work with Capcom to make it as detailed as possible. I remember there was one really interesting thing about um, the demo that we did of the game to get the game greenlit. They were fixated on just the texture quality of the floor. Raccoon City probably has the best-looking floor of any <laughs> game <laughs> that I've ever worked on. You know, if you compare it to Skate, I'm like, wow, yeah, this, this is a detailed road i mean they really wanted to make sure that had that sort of detail of those rendered kind of versions of raccoon city we'd seen in the past this was raccoon city in hd you know this first time we're seeing it in this resolution so it had to look really good and they really really pushed the art team and one of the reasons the game is so dark is they kept saying go darker 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 and so we did (laughs) so uh I know I banded around the idea of making an open world Raccoon City. That's because I came from the likes of Skate and Driver San Francisco prior to this. So for me, I would have been very comfortable doing an open world game and trying to cram it into the development cycle we had. But, you know, quite quickly, it was about the scenarios that we had and building the levels that we needed to. We needed to make sure that we had the RPD in there or, you know, Birkin's Lab and, and those things. Here I am playing the game looking at the surroundings. I should have been looking at my feet. 
<laughs> yeah, you'll get you get more impressed when you look down. You go, wow! Like... <laughs> Just imagine skateboarding round wrecking. <laughs> the reason that question got asked about me was in the Spec Ops campaign. Yeah. In one particular room, you can find two different bags of concrete, and one's labeled Type One, and the one the other's labeled Type Two. And it's not really seen anywhere besides this particular room. And it looked like something you'd pick up in a different Resident Evil game and mix together for a puzzle. I guess we leaned a bit on the Chronicles games for some inspiration. So some of the things that are different, I think like the sewers and things like that, more inspiration was taken from the Chronicles games because they were more updated and perhaps more like what Capcom wanted things to be. I hope that answers your question. It's it's more of a team effort and the art director and his team just being passionate about what it is that they were doing. So they did a fantastic job. They did a really good job with all these random little details and props. Just feel like they would have been in any other game, really. Yeah, I think it was just they really pushed us. And Barry McDougall and the Sun 6 art team, they really delivered. Next question comes from Sonny Bauer from New Jersey. Even though Resident Evil Operation Raccoon City has been classified as an, a what-if scenario, mm-hmm. I couldn't help but notice the attention to detail that this game has, recreating such scenes as Hunk walking in on Birkin and the tanker crash with Leon and Claire, and right down to the very same dialogue, as if we're really mm-hmm. seeing these scenes from a different perspective. I heard that you were a fan prior to working on this, and it really shows throughout the game. Did you initially plan to tell the stories from different perspectives, but whilst adhering to the canon narratives, such as the decimated Delta Force team and tyrants in the Dead Factory from Resident Evil 3? Or was the plan always to retell the scenario in the Echo 6 fashion, where they defeat the tyrants and survive as in the final release? Mm, interesting. Well, obviously, because we're doing both sides, it's it's totally what if. But you did write that inspiration was drawn from the original games, and if possible, if we were going to have uh, the characters in, that you know, why change the dialogue? We know what the dialogue is. We don't need to change it. So a huge amount of effort was put into the game to make sure that the production would satisfy a Resident Evil fan. The moments that you mentioned, like the tyrants, we put that in to explain why they're there in Resident Evil 3. So the Dead Factory, it was just, let's explain that. Echo 6, we still need to secure Sherry Birkin before Umbrella does. They have a significant force advantage on the ground in Raccoon City. We've got to disable their forward operating base located at the P-12A Waste Disposal Facility, known as the Dead Factory. Make your way there and neutralize all Umbrella Forces present. Yes, Command. With the Umbrella campaign, we're trying to keep everything as close to the original canon as possible, so it really ties in. That was our link to the past, that scene where Birkin is created. I think we did that from the Umbrella campaign and then sort of revisited it with the Echo 6 campaign, knowing that perhaps the Umbrella guys have been here before and thinking about things slightly differently. But the idea was always to tie it as closely to canon as possible because we're Resident Evil fans and this is the game that we thought would explain some of those things that you've seen, like the Tyrants being dead in the Dead Factory. The one interesting thing as it brings up is the campaigns were going to be a choice. So if you look at the missions, they could almost be placed side by side. And it's almost like you're doing the opposing thing in the different missions, right? As I said, I think the ultimate culmination from us would have been the massive sort of boss fight mission between the two sides, but wasn't to be. 
Capcom Japan sort of imposed this idea of Kill Leon, which killed any idea of it being a canon game. They took the approach, a similar approach to how they looked at, say, the Chronicles games, using the same scenarios, but rehashing them slightly differently. That was their creative mindset to Resident Evil Operation Raccoon City. It was very clear that this wasn't going to be a numbered Resident Evil, and the numbered Resident Evils are the canon. But we also have Expanded Universe, which keeps very much the canon. And sometimes, certainly, Code Veronica's one and the Revelations games can, can add even more. My dream was to always have fans embrace the fiction that we came up with as canon. Regardless if it's non-canon, it certainly falls into the realm of an Expanded Universe. It's up to you if you kill Leon, but that happens right at the end. So that's like one event. So everything leading up to that event, there could be lots of events that you could consider as canon, but there's no way Capcom would entertain that. I remember having these kind of conversations when I was directing the game fascinating just to know whether it's even a concept that the Capcom Japan would have. Yeah, they clearly understand that Raccoon City falls outside of what they believe the storyline thread to be. My hope was the Wolfpack would become eventually part of canon, that that this wouldn't be the one game that they would feature in and that would be it. Because I really like those characters and and, and same with that. I've got some good news for you. (laughs) (laughs) There's three Japanese exclusive games. One of them's called Biohazard Clan Master. It's a card-based mobile game where at some point past Resident Evil 6, these two ex-Umbrella scientists make a big supercomputer to allow simulations to be run on past historical biohazard events. And that basically gives the players in Japan a opportunity to revisit the story of all the canon installments. And one of the installments that are included in that list is Operation Raccoon City. Clan Master, when it ended, had two spiritual sequels, uh, Outbreak Survive, which is a Raccoon City-based card game where you're just random survivors trying to work their way out of Raccoon City, but you unlock these special card packs that gives you hero characters and other characters who are exist in Raccoon City during that time. So you could get things like Leon helping you or Hunk, but also the Spec Ops and the USS characters from Operation Raccoon City are also in that game to help you. And then the third game, Biohazard Outbreak Team Survivor. It takes place post-Raccoon City during the Umbrella Corps timeline where there's tons of outbreaks happening all over the world. And you play as a, uh, basically some mayor of some third world country hires you to help deal with an outbreak in his city. And you don't have much money because it's like a third world country, so you're hiring mercenaries. And some of the mercenaries you can hire are ex-Umbrella employees, including Wolfpack. That's, that's brilliant news. Also add to that the fact that the Capcom keep using Operation Raccoon City textures, even in Resident Evil 7. That's, that's yeah. fantastic too. The next one's from Batman and Era 2. They both ask, one of the bigger criticisms from fans was the geography and locations. Some Resident Evil gamers would have had more fulfilling experience if the game had included the iconic buildings from the series as fondly remembered. Was it a budget thing, for example, why the Raccoon City Hospital and Umbrella Laboratory do not look like their respective RE3 and 2 counterparts, or was this a deliberate departure from the canon? I would say where you do have a departure that it's somewhat deliberate because we have a bit of a freedom in the gameplay that maybe you didn't have before. So we had to change things to accommodate the gameplay that we wanted to do. But if something could remain the same, it usually we attempted to make it remain the same. We noted there were some differences with the Chronicles games, especially related to art, and we adopted some principles and, and drew inspiration from those. 
as opposed to the other numbered games. And I think part of the reason for doing that might have been at that time Capcom wanting to retcon or modernize certain things. Yeah, so it was a series of compromises. We were never going to be able to do all the gameplay in the same sort of spaces. If we're thinking about giant mods or, <laughs> and they can move around. We have to do them a little bit differently. A lot of people thinking now with like Remake 2, are they going to, in the future, if they have to show like Raccoon City or anything from RE2, are they going to use Remake 2? Are they going to use Darkseid Chronicles? Are they going to use the original? It seems like at this time, Capcom wanted you to focus on the Chronicles version rather than the original. Yeah, we, we also had the fact that we were Kill Leon, right? We were non-canon. That helped with those decisions. It'll be up to them in the future. They'll probably pick and choose and go, this is the definitive version now. Yeah, you can't pick and choose, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) It's a sore subject. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Capcom came out and said on on the podcast, they got Capcom Confidential Podcast, and on there they said that the original Resident Evil 2 takes precedence, but in the new game, Project Resistance, they've used more elements from Remake 2, so there's a bit of a contradiction right now as to what they're going to go forward with. It's kind of a hard thing to do to please everyone. I respect that as much as anybody else having directed this project. But it's, it's kind of like the difference between Star Trek, the original series, and Star Trek, the movies. The USS Enterprise from the original series doesn't hold up compared to the later ones that appear in the movies. And you just live with that change. You go, well, yeah, it kind of makes sense. Everything's evolved. The technology's evolved. If they put that original ship in, maybe it wouldn't work so well. So you learn to turn a blind eye to it. And I do with Star Trek. The Klingons in the original series do not look like modern Klingons. I'm okay with that. I'm like, you know, I just accept that the newer version is good, but it has to be better in some way, shape or form. If it's not, or it has to respect some of the pillars that are maybe there. And if it doesn't, then you're in big trouble. It's a, it's a hard problem to solve. And I feel somewhat sorry for somebody who's, who's in that situation because you're never going to win. Just to chime in, as a hardcore Star Trek fan, they actually did explain the differences of Klingons. There's a prequel series called Star Trek Enterprise. In that series, some terrorist group tried to kill off the Klingons with a virus. The main character, uh, Jonathan Archer, was a human and he had the antibodies. So, yeah, Yeah. that made them lose their ridges. Yeah. Just saved us from like a thousand angry emails. (laughs) Thank you, Rodney. I've just been schooled on Star Trek. (laughs) Oh, phew. Thanks, Rodney. That is somebody trying to wallpaper over cracks, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's going to be really difficult for them now because they've got three different interpretations of one game. So, yikes. Or <laughs> it's just school me. Stop schooling people. Well, you've got the cell phone version. That one had some new details too. Yoke asks, were you restricted over the use of BOWs that you could design into the game, be it original ones or your own creations? The Nemesis Beta was an excellent addition with a great backstory in the inserted evil files. Was this a Capcom or Slant 6 invention? I heard Kawada say they were put in as kind of a homage to the plug of Resident Evil 4. Is that the case? It's interesting. I, I don't think we're limited too much by Capcom. I think if there was an opportunity to create a, a creature, we'd do that. But I can tell you that Inserted Evil was developed in parallel to the game, so I didn't know too much about it. I know it sounds kind of strange, but something like this, I'm more intrigued by it now than I probably would have been at the time, because it'd be weird to play the marketing material when you're working on the game full-time. You're literally going home to just sleep. So we did put in the NE Beta Parasite that was put into the game to 
to allow us to control the NPCs differently and to have them, I think they climbed up them and take over control. And they also explained the creation of the Super Parasite Tarrant, which we created for the Spec Ops campaign, where we had a bit more time. So we actually created a, a, a boss, I suppose, for the end. But we literally had room to make one creature for the campaign and then one creature for the DLC. And, and that was it. If we had unlimited budget, I'd still be creating new things. <laughs> <laughs> the game wouldn't be out yet, and I'd still be creating new BOWs. I loved the beta stuff. The Parasite Tyrants, all that, I thought they were a really fantastic idea. Yeah, I really like the, the idea of naming it um, Super Parasite Tyrant. As it's kind of like the naming convention that they have. You know, they've got the Tyrant, the Super Tyrant. And I wanted the any beaters to be called Crawlers or something and give them the sort of same 90s sort of naming. So yeah, it was, it was it was fun to make those. And definitely fun when we got them working in-game and they crawled up a character and then took over the character. It was pretty cool. we started pitching ideas to Capcom about what the sequel could be. The sequel was not anything like Operation Raccoon City. We wanted to take one of the canon characters and do an origin story of them that would be kind of scary, but like Uncharted as well. It would be... Oh, wow. I pitched the idea that you've got a programmable virus. You take it to the pharmaceutical company and they, and you tell the pharmaceutical company, Hey, this virus, it can cure anything. We created something and it can just cure anything. It's programmable. And then instead of curing things, they use the programming part of it to create things. And then you discover that. So you trust no one. You don't trust anyone in stars. You, you don't trust any of the other characters. And all of a sudden you're going into the headquarter buildings to talk to somebody about this and they just unleash one of these creations on you and that's how the game starts ah oh, man i want to play that <laughs> and this is actually quite interesting because it puts you at unease with everything else and all of a sudden it gives a growth to one of the characters where you understand how he becomes in the series that sounds awesome uncharted and resident evil like my two favorite series so they fit together so well. I mean, the game mechanics, if you want to make a game that is going to be truly scary, uh, you want to be able to climb things and run away from things, and you want to be able to shoot things, and they really have a nice fluid gameplay, those games, and that's what we wanted to have, is a fluid gameplay, but have the horror back, so that one creature in a room is something that is really hard to deal with, as opposed to, where uh, zombies are just an annoyance, they're not even a threat, you know, so mm. it's kind of dialing that back, it would have been my game to be creative on, to interpret what I think Resident Evil could be in the 21st century, so that's what I wanted to create. In terms of official channels, had you, Andrew, heard anything? Because a question that Alan Wempe Mao asked Salan, Ahmed, and Joke all, all ask, and I'm sure many yep. of the fans as well, Capcom have stated that the game was a, a huge success, and as we know from the sales figures yep. in Japan, that was very much the case. Has there ever been a plan for a sequel? And they ask, if so, and I'm sure we already know the answer, would you be interested in developing one? I would love to develop 
more Resident Evil. It's such an amazing franchise. It's a rich franchise. It has, for me, the golden era of games of my lifetime has been the PlayStation, and that's where it was born. That's when I got my job, so it's something that I associate with just being right at the beginning and being starry-eyed about this profession and how awesome it is. I'd love to do that. We did come up with other ideas. The idea that Wolfpack would then survive and then they would go on fighting to regain control of samples for Umbrella. You know, after Umbrella, everybody's got these samples, like the Paga in Spain and things like that. So they would go and, and try and get the samples back and maybe working for some other canon characters. So we wanted to entertain the possibility of more action-based Resident Evil games, including the characters that we'd created. Maybe the government side always trying to work for the governments themselves, trying to get those things back too. So it pits them against one another. I think they made it. It's called Umbrella Corps. This is the <laughs> umbrella trying to pick up viruses from around the world, which is what you described. Yeah, yeah. So I know that we sent that idea. <laughs> when you were saying that, I was think I basically was thinking to myself, honestly, this sounds like a much better version of Umbrella Corps. One of the things that I know, sometimes the same idea happens. Send them your Uncharted idea, because I want that game made. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we can get a grassroots campaign and then, you know, a Kickstarter. <laughs> this is the whole stuff Capcom should be doing. These are the things that I remember, like, putting in emails, um, trying to get interest in and to see if we could do it. And nothing is more disappointing than finding out they're not going to do Game 2 with you. Because the whole, the, the reason I worked so hard on game one was because I wanted the opportunity of getting a proper timeline and really sort of making game two. And ultimately, I would have done anything to have made a proper game with a proper timeline. Um, and, and that's not to say Operation Raccoon City is not a proper game because I enjoyed playing it with people and I enjoyed making it. So it's just one of those things that you just wish you could have moved forward with one of those other ideas and still worked with Capcom because I have great mm. respect for Capcom, the people that work there. They they are experts. They've been there for a long time. They know games. Library-like information about the games. They're super talented, so if you appreciate Capcom games. You love working with these people. And I absolutely adored my time being there. Had they opened up a line of communication for a sequel, how far had that conversation developed? It was all thoughts and ideas. You know, it was more us pitching to them. Yeah. Next question. This comes from BSA Arclay again. There are clear references to the S.D. Perry series of Resident Evil novels throughout the game, such as Operation Watchdog. Was this a Slant 6 or Capcom decision to include S.D. Perry details? It's interesting because Operation Watchdog came up as something that we discussed in the design office and it was Andrew Lee, Dave McKenna and Tyler McCulloch and it was ob obviously an influence on the design knowing that there was this mission to go investigate the BOW's performance. So, you know, we decided that we really want to leverage it and it's almost the basis, one of the reasons why this team are there, even though it's not really called out. During the BOW apocalypse, it's a real sort of shout to those sort of moments where monsters there's a raining down on the city and people could be there to evaluate their combat effectiveness which is why the USS in the, in the game are collecting data the whole time they're collecting data to go to take away and go and analyze and it's not really something that's worked into the plot again because of the time so you can see it, aspects of it there and you can see that what we try to do 
Well, I have a question about that, if yeah. you know it. Uh, mm-hmm. In the USS campaign, mm-hmm. when after Nikolai gets done saying, "I'm uh, your employers gave me your comm data channel, I'm collecting data for uh, Operation Watchdog, was Wolfpack kind of like Umbrella's versions of stars? Like, were they meant to be guinea pigs too? I think we allude to that because they obviously become expendable, right? So yeah. it's almost like there's a sinister overlord, in this case, the USS Commander type of character that we did where he makes them expendable. Again, you can sort of factor that into evaluating their performance and to see if they can survive and if they're a really good crack team. So yeah, we had fun making these things and discussing them. And definitely, if you get really into the story, you can see what's going on there. It's a massive double cross and you can see that Umbrella benefits from everything, everything that's going on. That's what we tried to do as fans uh, collectively. We tried to do something that would be something that you guys would want to happen with these special forces soldiers during an outbreak. We wanted to, of course, explain the outbreak as well and why there's um, extra BOWs there. And so we used it all, uh, hopefully to good effect in terms of story. We got an epidemic on our hands, folks. All right, deploy the special operatives. We stick together. You hear me? We had lots of materials. We didn't have like a Resident Evil brand Bible or history document. We used books that were published, though. Resident Evil archives. Yeah. We use those and we use any information, you know, we'd, we'd actually glean the fan sites as well, find out things that we liked and we'd come up with concepts and then we'd speak to them about the ideas. So everything was done with Capcom's inclusion. Yeah, it would have been nice to have like a defensive resource. We had to look at third party books. We play through the games again. As a game designer, I want to be able to reference the game whenever I want. You've got YouTube become great to review something quickly when we couldn't quite remember the thing in the studio and we're arguing about a game fact you know if you played a game and it, you played it a year ago or you played it last week sometimes you don't remember the details as they were and so we'd have these arguments then we'd be on the internet or whatever or it, it's just like you guys if you guys were making a resident evil game you'd find points of contention oh my where, god <laughs> I, exactly we had all the same arguments the sign-off was getting it to capcom whether it was writing or referencing something like operation watchdog and you know we had to get sign off and how many times have me and you fallen out over resident evil 5 (laughs) (laughs) you can understand the situation that i was in because most of the game designers were avid resident evil fans that just proves what you just said just proves that the game was made by fans yeah exactly what we do (laughs) (laughs) this is where i felt the press didn't pick up on the fact that it was these people who are fans perhaps making a game that wouldn't be their most ideal resident evil game but they were doing it in such a way that was ultimately respectful to fans we want to make a game that we'd be happy to play every time i'm throwing a flare in the game i'm thinking flashlights you know i'm thinking (laughs) (laughs) if you haven't been through those battles you're just thinking oh this is all right it's a little bit interesting working behind the scenes on something. Next question comes from Resi Fax from England and myself, George Trevor. And Resi Fax says, really happy you're taking the time to shed light on the development of this really contentious but nonetheless interesting instalment of our beloved franchise. My question concerns abandoned ideas for the game. Were there any big ideas that you had that could not be included in the final game? And were there any elements Capcom refused inclusion of that perhaps you were frustrated about? And what was the single most significant gameplay mechanic of your creation that did not make it into the released version? 
you know, I was shattered by the reviews. There was mechanics that I think needed repairing, and there was mechanics that should have gone into the game, like hopping over cover and things like that. When you ask me a question about if there's a mechanic that's left out that do I feel bad about um, or do I have some sort of regrets over, I think about those things like hopping over the cover, which just make the whole experience of the cover system so much more palatable. There was something really weird in the, the Spec Ops campaign where you have to press triangle to go up a curb. You shouldn't have to do that if you're a Special Forces guy. So they're the things that really mattered to me. These anomalies that went into the game, but because of production, because of time left, we just didn't do them because of someone saying oh it's going to take a bit longer to do the animation we just didn't do them we used the expression it felt like death by a thousand cuts there's a lot of small things that we should have made higher priority as a team and that's not to explain away the issues because we wanted to fix everything on the design team especially we wanted to fix the game but you are limited by budget you are limited by time there was lots of things. You have the uh, the bleed-out mechanic in the game. It's called Blood Sense. And that was an idea that we really designed in relation to... It was Inafune-san's suggestion that it would be very good to do that. And I wanted to do something that was very similar. I wanted to have uh, zombies feast on corpses <laughs> because I thought this is the game where we can make human corpses. I mean, that's not really something we do every day in Resident Evil. So I, I figured that that would be good too. But really, it goes in into the game as just the live bleed out that's what attracts the zombies and the one animation i got is basically them holding their their guts this is the one animation we've got they hold their guts but you're telling me shoot them in the head and that doesn't kill a human it just makes them bleed from the chest and stomach so they're some of the things that you know you had (laughs) to deal with you have to be gracious with people's ideas. I mean, you always have managers and things like that, so it becomes a very sort of diplomatic challenge. <laughs> but literally, in some of those cases, we had to try out those things first just to satisfy somebody's opinion. But again, it's about immersion and these little yeah. things. I mean, these are basic mechanics yeah. that you'd expect to have got right on the 8-bit home computer generation yeah, yeah. in the 80s. But- it's not to say the guy working on uh, tuning the weapons got wrong, but in certain cases, things were mandated. You respect the people who mandate those things, and you have to move forward with them. And actually, one of the things that day one patches is it fixes the headshots. You know, that might have been it for some reviewer somewhere, but, you know, the day one patch, was, which was unavailable at the time they reviewed the, the game, it was fixed. Hopping over cover, the flashlights, all those things that would have made the experience for me just a lot better. You know, for me, all those things were points in review scores. Not having them meant that we were going to get negative criticism. And we certainly did. That's a massive regret. There was things that I remember Capcom Japan would intercept and say, we're not doing that. And there were things that had previously been greenlit. The Nemesis mode was one of the things where I think you turn the Nemesis on and off in the final game, but really you were meant to be controlling him. So it was meant to be a bit more dynamic than what was released. I remember that. I always wondered about the Nemesis mode because the final version seemed so tacked on because it mostly just revolved both teams standing by the computer while Nemesis turned back and forth shooting everybody because it kept switching who's controlling them. Exactly, but the idea was one person was meant to play the Nemesis, right? When you look at the business side, I think the Nemesis mode became something that was promised, and then you have to make something else. 37 asks, the screenshot of Hunk, or perhaps a character that resembles him alongside the Wolfpack, was Hunk ever destined to be a playable character in the game? This is a quick one, though. Vector was our playable version of Hunk. He started out with almost being a, a reimagined version of Hunk. 
Punk himself is not someone we wanted in the game. He was always far too mysterious uh, for us to put in as main player character. I think it would spoil his character. The same thing as the Boba Fett movie. It would take all the mystique away from Boba Fett. That's great to hear from, again, from just a true fan say that. Because you can imagine someone who doesn't have an appreciation of that mm. sensitivity of the character or of the previous biography, just, you know, just sticking him in, actually quite a lazy thing to do, kind of like a headline character to stick him in. But that's great mm. to hear. Yeah, yeah. I am not, never had any problem with using the hero characters in multiplayer where belief is completely suspended, but um, yes. not for the story. One funny story, though, is uh, the co-director of the game. So we, we hired a guy called Thomas Pirinen, who's a great, great game designer. And he used to be my boss at Ubisoft. And he came in and he, he got this uh, co-game director credit because he wasn't actually hired for Resident Evil Operation Raccoon City. But you could, you could see there was lots of things to do. So he just started helping out. But there's this great moment where you're getting close to the end and he, he's a bit of a cosplayer and he came in dressed as Hunk. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just amazing because we had loads of issues building that first level because there's no mo-capped animation for him to speak. So he's just doing idle animations. I don't know if you noticed this so it's a bit of smoke and mirrors he's talking and it went wrong so many times because the animations are just firing off randomly it just looked insane and it looked a bit silly <laughs> and, and we of course ai is probably one of the areas that i would like to revisit for the game and there was one part where he got into the elevator and he walked in backwards <laughs> <laughs> and so i always remember filming i think i have this somewhere i, I should look on an old computer but filming thomas Pyridon walk around the office and repeat all the AI bugs <laughs> because at this point we're stuck with it you know we've got a game yeah. it's gone out and we have to protect our sanity so I always remember him walking into the elevator backwards and I just couldn't <laughs> stop laughing it was amazing <laughs> This is where, you know, the extra time would have been great to have, have done a proper cinematic. There's one camera shot where it sort of scrolls up his body, the screen, to his head. And that was something that somebody on the cinematic side really, really pushed for. And then it become uncuttable. And that, that annoys me to this day, because for me, I, I thought it didn't look cool enough. But it was accepted. And, uh, you know, these are the things where you got a second try, a do-over, you would probably fix those things. In a triple impact trailer, the USS and the Spec Ops teams engage each other. We don't see this in game. The only thing we get in game is in the uh, Spec Ops campaign. We hear four yeah. eyes over the intercom. Was there meant to be other USS crossover between the two campaigns besides just that one old spot? Yeah, I know when we were planning progression, I said you chose sides. The original layout of the game was you could be Umbrella or Spec Ops and you could do the mission from either point of view. So that was one of the original ideas. So Spec Ops was not DLC. It was part of the main game. The idea was to do a level that combined both teams in it at the end. But then, obviously, we focused on just the Umbrella campaign. It was a decision to change the production, and that led to some differences there. So I think, originally, there would have been a lot more crossover. And in the Spec Ops campaign, we thought, well, let's do a bit of that crossover that was intended for the main game. Next question. This comes from Alan Wempe Mao from New Jersey, the Batman and Yoke. Was there an end game planned for Wolfpack in regards to the destruction of Raccoon City and how they would survive the outbreak? 
Was further DLC ever planned in relation to this and tying up other stories? For example, what was Echo 6's additional mission in Raccoon City after they got Sherry out? And if Capcom were to treat the game as canon, mm-hmm. what would be the proper ending for you? Did, <laughs> Did somebody just gasp at <laughs> the word canon? <laughs> <laughs> did, did any did any of Wolfpack and Echo Six make it out alive? That's amazing. I think in the end we'd love to have done more with the Wolfpack and the Echo Six team. My view is they were going to be the basis of one of the planned sequels. We were in talks, as I've mentioned, about doing something where it becomes about the war over the samples. Maybe some sort of umbrella war. That was the idea, was to try and continue these characters because we could see people wanted to cosplay them before they'd come out. We could see there was some sort of popularity attached to them. I have Vector behind me on the wall. I'm still shopping for a Lupo character. The idea was they were all going to be toys or figurines, so, you know, I could really see that. All joking aside, what would be so fantastic about that? Capcom have been repeating the same mistake of bringing into new installments, new characters that we don't have an an attachment for, we don't have a a prior relationship with. Just far better to have worked with that cast, that really interesting and unique and varied cast of characters and to have got to know, like you said, maybe one or two in in different expanded universe games. Well, Adam bullied the guy that ultimately came up with the characters and the original character barriers. was really progressive, but I, I think it's um, one of the things that a Western developer would bring to Resident Evil is a different kind of humanity that we're used to or, you know, that's part of the culture all around us. Especially in British Columbia, you meet all sorts of different types of people, different backgrounds, and this is what is great about those teams, especially the Umbrella team. It's United Nations, you know, it's like a, a bunch of misfits and with the Echo 6 team, it, again, it was different characters and caricatures of people we, we know or we've met before. And I really liked working with those characters. They were good. I think they deserved more than what they got. It's up to the, whoever develops this franchise next, whether they want to bring those characters back. And I think they should. There's always room for that group of characters. I do think there's room for more of an uncharted paced game and things like that. So there's room to do a lot more with Resident Evil and what they've done. But they have to get the basics right it has to be dark scary cinematic survival horror in whatever vein they do my problem with the series not so much introducing new people mm. it's more they introduce new people and then you never see them again exactly what happened with operation raccoon city yeah 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 we never thought we were making throwaway characters we felt like they should have more character arcs there's one interesting thing that happened where during the, the developments of the main game I got the script back and I um, I only had like a weekend or so with it before it went to recording so I got this script and I was reading all the responses and I, I felt that basically the team were echoes of themselves so you know if you played with a different character the conversation was always the same and they said the same things but if you actually look at the spec up script it's a little bit different because we got the opportunity to do some more recording with those characters what actually happens is they answer differently the conversation becomes slightly more dynamic so just to give you an example on the umbrella side it's man woman man woman or something like that on the uh, spec up side it could just be if you got this person in the team they'll say something you know if they're scientists they'll say something scientific and give you a bit more knowledge so actually playing through the game with different characters has a bit more narrative meaning and that would have been really great to have done from the start outbreak with the special ad libs and stuff like that yeah yeah that exactly
they have their own perspective because they're related to that area. Yeah. Exactly. My vision was always the science officer. If you got the science officer there, she's going to tell you what the weak spots and she's going to give you more information than just having not having the science officer there, you know. So if you didn't have four eyes and you come up against a hunter, you wouldn't realize the hunter has a shielded back or something, you know, something like that. Sadly, again, dialogue was recorded right at the beginning of development as opposed to right at the end. And I think the best practice is to record right at the end when you know your game and you can give way more narrative or exposition to the game. And it's just sad that that didn't happen. Got to know the characters better as well and their own different perspectives. As I said, you can kind of see it a little bit in the spec ops because I always remember the audio guy going, what have you done? <laughs> it was done sort of very sort of programmatically, you know, all the pauses. And then all of a sudden they had different size sentences. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite parts in the uh, spec ops campaign was playing as a science officer, uh, Sona, because he always did kind of point out some things like that. I think he's the only one that points out that Birkin's weak spots the eye. Yeah. But when you first see the zombie in it, he actually knows it's a zombie from the get-go, and he'll make the comment, I don't think Command's telling us everything about this situation. I always like that. Yeah, there were some flourishes that were added to the writing by the design team, even though the design team are not credited as writers on the project. For example, in the Umbrella campaign, when you're going into City Hall in Mission 2, for example, there was just nothing being said there. There was no dialogue script. So when I got the dialogue script, I just thought this was the perfect opportunity to just make things up and use your imagination and try and sell this emotion of going into City Hall for the first time. So what I did is I wrote all this dialogue, like one of them goes, we're going into the cold zone and then one of the other characters would say what's the cold zone and the other ones would say it means there's no heat signatures that just adds a bit of fear you're writing all this dialogue yourself wow yeah yeah we had a couple of days the script that came back i don't think it matched perhaps what the japanese directors wanted they'd written a story now they'd done a version of it internally and then they localized it back to english with the localization department and i just felt it was missing some things that would add to the fiction or add to the you know the environment one of the interesting things is on the spec ops campaign when they were going in they all shouted zombies and i was like no you would not go into an like this something's happened in the city and your government troop yeah. and you're going in there and you've seen humans for the first time you don't go zombies you go <laughs> survivors <laughs> so so that's one of the changes i remember making in the script myself that extra realism that you were trying to give it would have given us as a gamer a far better experience of immersion into it yeah, and I think, for example, if I'm in real life and I'm walking down in a zombie outbreak and somebody has got a gun over there, one of the other characters can notice it before I notice it, go, look out! And then all of a sudden I'm on alert and it just works so much better. So, you know, there's things like that that could have been way more flourishes in the writing and way more events in the writing that would have just made the game more immersive. This is Vector. I found the target. Raccoon City police officers on site. The infected are closing in. Time for them to know the true terror of our bioorganic weapons. The inserted evil files were excellent and really tie in well with the law. Is there a reason they were not implemented in game and why Resident Evil Operation Raccoon City had no in game files? It was because they developed away from us. You'd have to speak to Capcom Japan because they sh- should have made it happen if they wanted that to be part of the game. 
there is actually a file on there. I found a file on the Operation Raccoon City disc. I ripped the game and I found a file. It's from Umbrella HQ to Director of Science and Development. The whole Umbrella campaign was about destroying evidence. The whole idea was that evidence should be visible evidence. So you have things like tapes and discs and things to collect in the game. Well, we wanted to, you know, we had all the time in the world. There would be actual things on those things. There wouldn't just be a collectible. There would be more than that. They would have some narrative meaning within the game. When I first seen the tape, I was like, oh, this is going to be cool. I'm going to read it. And it, was <laughs> it just basically was a bridge too far. You have to understand, the missions were literally getting finished right at the end of that project. There were still bugs in, in the game. The amazing thing is the day one patch sorts out some pretty major stuff. So it shows you that to work on something like that, we just didn't have the time. This is from Wester's report. He asked, I think it's clear that yourself and the Slant 6 team were very passionate about this project, but how much enthusiasm did Capcom show? I think they were truly professional and, and pushed the game, and they pushed us to make the game that we did. When you look back at it, despite the criticism or negativity from the press, it was a global number one, and for the next five years would be one of Capcom's top 20 selling games of all time. That's crazy. Think about that. It's it's yeah. absolutely amazing. I just feel privileged. I think they really wanted to, like we did, make the best possible game in the time that we had. And I say we, because they had to release a game too. It is a business at the end of the day, as much as we like it or not. I'd prefer there to be a strong Capcom that's financially sound, and we help make that so. I can't fault any moment of working with Capcom at all. Next one's from Alan Wempe-Mau. How would you describe your relationship with Capcom through pre-production, game development, and then post-production? It was rosy in the beginning, and then <laughs> over the course of development, I think there was strain on both sides because there's so many ideas that we had to work on in such a short amount of time. And towards the end, Capcom Osaka, the guys that were working on it anyway from Capcom Osaka, basically lived in our office. So at that point, I do remember being in work late, losing my voice, <laughs> speaking to Capcom, maybe reassuring them of things or debating some game mechanics. But it was never, it was never bad at GDC this year. I got to see two members of that team and it was great shook hands and it's great to meet with them again and i think it was fantastic did you work with um kawata yeah kawata san really one of my favorite characters always happy very easy to talk to we had really productive conversations so i think he was a complete not a gentleman i got to travel with him to blair studios when we kicked off um, the trailer he definitely knows what he wants and he's definitely a good person to work around it's always good to work around people who know what they want and he's one of them you haven't got his mobile number have you (laughs) next time you're speaking to him will you put in a good word for us After the game's launch, what was your and your team's review of the release product? Were you satisfied with the finished build? This is the one that brings tears to my eyes if I really think about it, because it was at this point I never worked on a game that hadn't been critically acclaimed. And I feel selfish because my last conversation with my late brother was about negative reviews. You don't think someone's going to pass away and, you know, here you are just caught up with work and you're talking to somebody saying this game has bugs and press and not liking it. Well, it makes me sad that me and a team poured so much into this game and such a little amount of time. I can't help but feel devastated by some of the reaction. But then my brother dies 
that eclipses everything. So all of a sudden you don't you don't think about bad reviews anymore. So so for me, was I satisfied with the finished build? No. Would I love to do director's cut of this game? Yes. Was the team satisfied? Probably not. No. They probably have the same sort of misgivings as I do, wishing they could have done another Resident Evil game the next game we were going to be working on. So it definitely was a sobering time and a time where I realised, you know, we're not on this earth just to, to work, to read criticism and take it to art. We're here to live and that's that's the most important thing I can take away. I know there was some positive moments. I know that I did a, a talk in Vancouver at the Fan Expo where we, we showed off the DLC and then I got to meet fans afterwards, you know. Yeah. And they were excited about the game and there was really cool moments. What are your overall feelings looking back? What is the most valuable lesson you have learned from working with Capcom on a Resident Evil title? And with the benefit of hindsight, what is one individual aspect you would change about the game's final build or its development process? There's a lot of things I'd personally change about the whole thing from the inception onward. Ideally made a, a, a very different Resident Evil game. But the you know, the thing is the biggest learning for me as an individual was to not put work in front of life that's what i did on this project despite being a global one it didn't change my life it's not like having a a movie or a song or or something like that that sells millions of copies now you all of a sudden your life is completely different in fact it was the reverse of that for me and a lot of bad events happened immediately after the game was released but i think from just the development process i think you need to respect the ip and respect the fans You know, I felt we had a duty to make the best game possible for the fans, and I felt the fans were crying out for a certain type of game, and and we didn't make that game. And that was the ultimate criticism in the reviews. People wanted to go back to Raccoon City and have a survival horror experience, and we didn't nail one of the pillars. We didn't nail that. So in retrospect, I would have joined the project sooner. I would have been in those early meetings. Maybe I would have been able to convince somebody at the point that they decided what this game was going to be that's through no fault of your own or any holes in your, in your knowledge in terms of the Resident Evil timeline. I mean, my God, they couldn't have had someone with a better appreciation for the series and, and for the games and, and for some of the aspects of the past games that really made this series as iconic as it is. And without, you know, getting into too much of a contentious area, it mm-hmm. just seems like you just weren't given the best tools and given the best opportunity to produce that type of game. The team that was working with are ultimately exceptionally talented. I mean, they made a game within one year. When I tell that to people in the industry, because I have to explain when I go to an interview this game, if you have heard about Operation Raccoon City, you, a lot of people haven't played it. They just know the review score. So I have to explain why was that? When I tell them it was made in a year, they go, oh my God, you know, I've since worked on mobile games that had a longer development time. So from my point of view, it's amazing technical feat to have got everything done to the point we got it to. I mean, just imagine what we could have made if we were using, I don't know, Unreal or something. We would have been able to crank out so much more content in that time. So the team itself works really, really fast and really hard. Every single one of them was an absolute pleasure to work with. And on the Capcom side, I'm I'm still in awe with the people that I worked with because of their background. I might not agree with every decision, but 
I still have a lot of respect for the people that I worked with. You know, there's a lot of things that I learned from making this game that have made me a much better game developer. Yeah, in a way, there's there's a lot of benefits that came from this, and I I love the opportunity it gave me as well to go to something like the inaugural Fan Expo in Vancouver and talk about Resident Evil. I got to unveil the DLC live, and then you meet Resident Evil fans afterwards, and they're not going, hey, three out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> They just want to speak yeah. to you and, and understand the game and, and, and talk about the characters and things like that. It was all those things combined that made it such a special experience. There's a funny story I should tell you that Capcom very sort of graciously invited me to E3 when Operation Raccoon was being shown. But equally graciously, they didn't have me signed up for any PR work, which was good. <laughs> so I was just wandering around E3 as a free spirit. And of course, I'm just like, I want to go and play my game. And I'm playing my game and I got Revelations there for the first time. I thought, I'll have a go of Revelations. And I started playing Revelations and it is a very typical Resident Evil experience where I was locked in the room and I thought, it's a puzzle, but I'm going to fire my gun at the lock to see if it breaks the lock. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, because it's a game designer that's designed this, the gun doesn't work on the lock. I was so angry. <laughs> at that time, the press came up to me, not knowing that I was a director on a Resident Evil game. I took a photo. And uh, a few hours later, I'm in a meeting with Capcom. You know, of course, I didn't get away scot-free. <laughs> Just as we were meeting, one of them said, oh my God. And this was the next day at E3, I should say. They went, oh my God, have you seen this? And there was a, a Japanese newspaper clip. And apparently it was on the front page of a newspaper in Japan. The headline was, I was playing Resident Evil, and it said, violent people play violent video games. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, I would not have had that opportunity to uh, <laughs> to get on the front page. Doing calls like this is, is a great thing for me, because it, it does provide some closure. So it's good to know some people enjoyed it and like it, and some of my life was well spent. It was never on sale. I can tell you that. <laughs> the other games were. I could buy those cheaply, but they never put Operation Raccoon City on sale, so I, I presume it's, it was selling well. Yeah, I think RE6 had a price drop before Raccoon City did. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I bought RE6, but it, also, I, I'll, I'll tell you something very personal. It's hard for me to look at Resident Evil the same way, because I've been involved in it, and mm. um, hasn't gone the way I wanted it. I, I feel things should be different. Yeah. I can't even imagine how much of a more personal level it is for you, Andrew, because, you know, hearing what you're saying, I completely understand because not even having got anywhere near that level of relationship with Capcom. And I can remember when Resident Evil 4 came out and just simply on the basis that it wasn't fixed camera angle, a proper third person perspective, much more combat orientated and, and less reliance on puzzles. And I actually felt so desperately let down. This was a series I'd invested so much emotion and time into, mm. and the first video game series actually that I really cared about, that's just on one tiny level from a game of yeah. that distance that I've got. It's quite interesting because Resident Evil 6, when that came out, I'd only seen snippets of it. I'd heard about the different types of gameplay in there, and it, it just... It didn't appeal to me, to be quite frank. A Resident Evil 7 does. I don't know. It's 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 crazy because I was such a, a Resident Evil fan. That it, the, you know, you were talking to me about who would give you information about the games and things like that, and you were surprised that Capcom didn't provide that information. But you know, at the time, I had um, a Wii and a PlayStation 3, and I bought every single Resident Evil game from on, on my own expense just so I could play them all again and really immerse myself in everything. 
it kind of burned me out and it become harder for me to get a job. Imagine that making a global number one, but it's actually harder because people look at the review score. Yeah. It's not to say my career has gone badly, but it really sort of had an adverse effect. Look at Slant 6. Slant 6 is not there anymore. Had we done another game or had more time to improve the quality, they'd probably still be there. So it's one of those games that's very divisive, even for me. But I really enjoyed aspects of making a game. I got to do all this motion capture and all these different things that I hadn't done. Well, you've got so much humility with it, Andrew, because the whole tone of this interview is just just one of appreciation. There isn't any bitterness at all. And, and even when you've, you've mentioned the contentious areas, you, you can't hear any anger or, you know, there's frustration and, yeah. and with us as well, with you as gamers, the missed opportunity that Capcom yeah. had. You this, sound this... exactly like us, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the one thing that connects us all is we're all Resident Evil fans, right? This is where I perhaps have the most difficult time with the press and the review scores because it, it's not reflective. You know, you're a fan and you try your best you tried to the best of your ability to do something and someone won't give it a chance that was very very hard to deal with yeah it's not bitterness it's kind of regret it, it's really yes. kind of strange that the right pr story wasn't told i mean i always think about it if they went to pr and said we got the lead designer of skate which was a hit game and mechanically everybody loved would they have been able to say oh this is socom again and then the innovations you know trying to do a quick draw mechanic because you're fighting other humans and zombies at the same time would that have been perceived in the same sort of way or would it have been oh this guy's trying to bring innovation to the project you know he's trying to solve problems with the game mechanics that need to be solved for this type of game that's what i was ultimately hoping for everything was designed with passion to make it work even though it wasn't the vision i would chose Another thing is that mechanic, the quick draw mechanic, was really trying to solve a third-person shooter. You know, I'd been playing Gears of War. I wasn't happy with being attacked from behind and the slow rotation. I wasn't happy with the 180 flip from Resident Evil either because we had analog sticks. I should be able to turn quickly and, and things like that. And that's that's where the, that mechanical those mechanical changes come from, was to try and improve the gunplay. And one of the things that really angers me about that one mechanic is if you play it and you execute the quick draw and you choose a direction, it automatically fires, which is something that was added by Capcom Japan, but it wasn't how it was designed. And the other thing was it was meant to turn the gun that you currently had, not draw the hand pistol. So you quickly would turn with your gun and be able to shoot. So it was a way of shooting away from the target very organically. <laughs> the funny thing about it is it never shipped like that. And then afterwards, I was chatting to somebody about it and they said, oh, yeah, what do you mean that would take too long? I could have done that in three hours. <laughs> oh, am I? The frustration I can't even imagine. Yeah, because when you're working on a video game, it's not like I'm telling that individual what to do. Because if I can tell that individual what to do, somebody else could probably tell them what to do. And, and so you have to control all these things. So he has a manager, yeah. and the manager controls everything. And it was things like that. These sort of communication breakdowns would mean the game just had these frustrations in it. And that's what you sense when I talk. Not quite achieving some of the gameplay goals, not quite having the writing and narrative quality to achieve those goals either. So there's a lot of frustration there. But I can tell you that that frustration exists on Skate, Skate 2, and every other single game I've worked on. I've never worked on a game, even if it's come out and been a UK number one and, and got 9 out of 10. It's the same frustration I have, so I just happen mm. to be slightly more frustrated with Operation Raccoon City. 
I think that's like the same as like an actor or an artist or something though. They look back and they work and they think, oh, I should have done this, should have done that. Yeah. Being like overly critical on yourself. <laughs> that, that make you better for future. Yeah, that's exactly it. I think, uh, I think you have to walk away from a project with regret. Otherwise you'd be entirely complacent going through the whole process. There's one story that I remember where at the end there was this meeting. Everybody was in the room, all the leads saying, oh, the game's done. I just freaked out. It takes a lot for me to lose my temper. And that was the one meeting that I'd lost my temper in because I felt the fans and Capcom and everybody was expecting something that was a higher grade than what we'd already achieved. So why would we ever say we're done? That's how I felt. At the same time, though, we had more than internal forces working against us. We had external pressure. Instead of fixing bugs, just ship them so we can ship on time. When you talked about the whole canon thing earlier, you mentioned uh, you compared it to Umbrella Chronicles. Uh, was that just your comparison, or was that actually from Capcom? Were they comparing it to that? Well, you know, we had a director from the Chronicles games on the project. And we had a director from Resident Evil 6 on the project. So th- those comparisons, I think, are valid in terms of what those uh, games contain. What I know is the numbered games are seen as the, the storyline and the, the non-numbered games are not seen as the full retelling of those events, you know. So I think maybe it's left for the fans to decide. If they're not saying this is canon and, uh, and this is not canon explicitly, then that's being left to the fans. It's not like Disney coming out going the expanded universe. That... Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've been so it... say this for years. Yeah, so from my point of view, it's up to the fans to decide until somebody takes it upon themselves. (laughs) I told you my feeling about it. My feeling was we're going to try and make and tie these stories as closely together as possible. So it'd be unavoidable for you to say the tyrants were there for any other reason than what we've shown you in this game, right? Well, USS Command's got the answer for you and and he'll send you his article when it's finished. Yeah. (laughs) quickly ask about scale who came up with the idea to use the analog stick to oh. do the moves on the board you know what everybody's going to claim this idea right. but I'm, I'm going to say to do the flip tricks and the ollie and everything on one stick that's yeah. that's my idea because you know why there was a, there was a guy on the art team called ken thurston and i was going home one night with a trick tips video because i've been skateboarding for a few days and i thought i should be able to <laughs> do flip tricks by now yeah. um, <laughs> i couldn't even do an ollie but uh, i was going home with this dvd that lent off uh, a co-worker and uh, i got back home and, and because he said to me andy play atv off-road fury 2 it's really good you know the bunny hops on the right analog stick that kind of sentence stuck in my mind and when i went home with the skateboard on the carpet in my apartment in vancouver it was made out of mostly glass <laughs> you see where this is going and i put this trick tips video on and it was an american dude going all you have to do to do an ollie is pop the board <laughs> and kick your foot forward and i tried to do it and you know what i nearly smashed the window i, I, I fell off the skateboard stick to making video games of it instead yeah 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 so i i basically um you remember those xbox s controllers the the nice ones for the original xbox I had one of those i just started watching the rest of the video and the guy said all you have to do to do a kickflip is pop the board like you do an ollie and kick your foot off to one side and it was during this part of the video, they showed arrows of the feet moving. And I realized that that was kind of a gesture for the right stick. The reason I realized that is the Trick Tips video actually showed a camera of the skateboarder overhead. And the arrows drew the arrows over the top. So that's where I sat down and went, oh, this maps to the right stick. And then it took six months of arguments to get that prototype. 
genius. This is one of the most <laughs> best uses, innovative uses of the sticker I've ever seen. It's you really... deserve an award for that. Like I didn't know nothing about it, but I learned so much from that game. <laughs> it was that one thing though the, the analog stick which i think just buried tony hawk because tony hawk just never recovered after that yeah you, you know the one thing is when you when you come up with a vision of a game mechanic you have to explain what the goals are and one of the goals in a control scheme become it, it should be intuitive it should be you know in skateboarding one of the important parts to win that argument about whether to go with that system was to acknowledge that the controls of skateboarding and the control of using a real skateboard are actually symmetrical. So the symmetry in the control scheme, if you look at it, somebody else wanted the SSX control scheme or the Tony Hawk control scheme. Just jump on it and just press X, that's it. It doesn't get you involved. Like, you feel like you've just pulled off a flip trick. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah, exactly. So you, you have the energy of it and then you have the symmetry. If you, if you think about Tony Hawk, you press X and you do an ollie, but you press, I think, O and X to do a ollie, and that's not the reverse. That's not symmetrical. Yeah. So it's nothing, it's just a button. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's sort of like something you have to learn, so mm. it's not intuitive. So anyway, that's something that I think was carried across into Operation Raccoon City, is to try and come up with controls that are intuitive and not reinvent the wheel and things like that. It's a massive fan base asking for Skate 4. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. They're constantly harassing EA on accounts <laughs> and stuff still to this day. Where's Skate 4? <laughs> they posted videos for like Battlefront and again, Skate 4 questions. So. As a game designer, when you talk about things like skates, I, I feel like some of the best moments of my career have been that epiphany where you think about an idea and, and then you get to, to actually make it in the video game. And with skates, it was um, this idea of using the analog stick to to do all the flip tricks. Yeah, it's, it's a really big moment because it's like one of the most innovative controls added to a controller in in years. It's like it's like Guitar Hero. It's revolutionary. Like I felt it was a real special thing. And then a chap called Jay Barmer, he fleshed out all the other moves. He was a skater in the background, so you know there was more than one person working on it. There was a, a guy called um, Brand New who went on to God of War series and did a lot of work on that control scheme. So it was definitely many people that made it come into fruition. It's, it's quite dangerous because, like you said, you, you think, "Oh yeah, I can, I can do this," and and then you get on the skateboard, and no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be trying that with any Resident Evil maneuvers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't find any zombies to kill, um, <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't just, be yeah. a method designer with Resident Evil. Better move on before GT scores me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to let you know that I think is absolutely amazing. It was a great game, and unlike the Resident Evil game, we had two and a half years to make that one game, and we had a year in pre-production. You've been incredibly generous with your time. We've been recording for almost four hours now. This last question comes from myself. What are your overall feelings looking back? What is the most valuable lesson you have learned from working with Capcom on a Resident Evil title? And with the benefit of hindsight, what is the one individual aspect you would change about the game's final build or its development? I think I'm going to just be quite honest and just say the cover. <laughs> Again, you know, obviously it's a huge thing that was missing, but I can think of a few staffing problems, but nothing I'd want to bring up in a podcast like this. And they helped inform how I hire people today. And I think there's other bits that I've learned, you know, even about myself, like this project really, really pushed me. It pushed me to go to mocap recordings and do things that I hadn't done before. That's what I liked about it. It was a complete and utter challenge. Every single day when I walked into the office, there was something different to solve. What are these things? Jesus. 
ends here. Command, we've eliminated the target. There's a sense of history now to this game by its game director. You you now know the struggle that I had with the game, and it's a document about game production, so in no way do I want to offend anybody with anything that I've said, because I really do respect the people that I've I've worked with. But to me, it, it's a great opportunity to go against some of that press that the game had, and the worst thing is somebody saying it's reskin SOCOM, because even the shooter mechanic itself was designed from scratch. Yes. For the game. What is yeah. absolutely certain is that you weren't given fair opportunity or even a right to apply, and the mm. journalism was lazy, certainly in those early stages. And I know it's a fact because my first experience of the game was reading just that lazy description about SOCOM with zombies. So, Andrew, yeah. I'm really pleased that we have afforded you this, you know, this opportunity to have a right to reply. And it's been a fantastic opportunity for us to get that insight into a director and a programmer's experience and relationship with, with a company like Capcom. So for me, George Trevor, thank you so very, very much for being with us this Halloween and, and for just sharing with us this incredible experience you had as the director of Resident Evil Operation Raccoon City. Thank you. Thank you very much. It felt like I was talking to another fan to be not to be disrespectful or anything. No, I, I think that's one of the greatest things we can say to Andrew. Actually, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'd agree with that. Yeah, <laughs> passion and everything, and it's made this conversation so much better. I've had a really good time talking to you, just as a fan more than anything. But yeah. also getting the inside information on top of that has been fantastic. So it's been an amazing experience, and I'm glad you've got to have you say now. And I, I hope people take into consideration everything that you went through with that game. I hope so too. Thank you for pretty much proving to these people what I've been saying for years. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been, been saying all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, because I just did research, and you know, so I was constantly pointing this stuff out. No one would ever acknowledge what I was saying, and that's why I had to re-ask you about the comparison to Umbrella Chronicles earlier, because the Japanese website for ORC states that it's another way to experience the story, which is word from word what they used to explain the Chronicle games. It was a, a very close tie into those games. So I thank you for giving me the opportunity. And, and, you know, I realize more than ever, just looking back at this game before doing this, you know, there's, there's people that, that like it and it's still pulling people apart. People are still arguing about it, which maybe is a good thing. Some people are still ripping on it and some people are defending it. And it's going to be like that for the rest of time. So I'm really thankful to add to that argument, whichever way you want to take it. You know, <laughs> you can see there's some bitterness on one side and then you see some happiness on another so um, I hope the fans really um, enjoyed it and that's all I've ever set out to do with any of the games I've worked on is to make something that I'd like to play and other people would like to play too so you know I enjoyed playing it with people so maybe some people recognize my voice from playing online <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be quite interesting maybe they'll find out what my gamer tag is and then start joining me on the other game <laughs> who knows but I, I wish to I wish to thank you guys for doing this and um, yeah you. let's do again do you want to join the site staff and come on our podcast every episode <laughs> <laughs> maybe yeah if i get to grill some capcom people maybe <laughs> <laughs> you know the best thing about it for me was um, sitting there with the translator and reading the japanese reviews yes this is after my brother passed away and i come back to vancouver and i still had an interest to find out how how it done we sat there with a the translator and he just said people really liked the controls they felt the controls were really intuitive and i thought well this is the first time a shooter's been packaged up for japanese people you know 
Think about it like I think Gears of War sold 52,000 units or something in Japan. So this was, you know, a Resident Evil title that was a shooter. So they were getting to play Western mechanics probably yeah. for the first time. And, and, and the takeaway was quite positive. The Fimitsu score was an eight, two sevens and a six, which I think is about the same as the skate score, <laughs> ironically. We obviously did some things right and, um, yes. and appealed to some people. But yeah, thank you again, guys. And there was so much possibility when I joined this game. You know, that's what I'm remembering. And, and that's one of the positive things is, you know, when I quit my safe job at Ubisoft and went to this this company that had six weeks left of funding uh, to, to try and make a demo to impress Capcom, it's obviously crazy, a very sort of high risk thing to do. But that was done out of the love of wanting to make a Resident Evil game. Mm. You don't just quit your job. And I always remember the guy saying, you know, this, this is not guaranteed. This could be the shortest career move ever for you but i did it and it was for me it's still a success in a way you know we made the game we got the deal we made the game i got inafune-san to sign my copy of Mega Man. <laughs> i'm happy i'm a game fan like you guys at the end of the day so uh, it's just a great experience uh, for me wow. it's nice make- to meet you all yeah you too yeah. Make, sure you, make sure you pitch that uncharted game because i want to play it <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah. yeah. Imagine if somebody makes that now. Wow, the tentacle throws the guy out of the building. You can see it. You know, <laughs> yes. the camera sort of pointing down, so you see the epicness of, oh, wow, I was in a skyscraper. I didn't even know I was in a skyscraper until now. Wow. And that's what I was imagining. It's called Resident Evil 8. Capcom be putting it out now. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Can you see that area behind me beneath the red tinted sky? That is what's left of Raccoon City. Our platoon is cut off. No survivors found. I'd rather starve to death than here. Than be eaten by one of those undead monsters. We're both gonna die. Wait, don't shoot. Del, I lost all my men because of her. All is lost. Cry for 